following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Hi, everybody. This is former WWE superstar Al Snow. And- CWN is Sean Oliver. My name is Eugene. And you are watching the Insider's Edge podcast. Now get on the train. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show here on the WZWA Network. I am your host with the most on the West Coast, California in theory, and I'm excited to be with you all here tonight. I have to say this is probably my most exciting interview because I get the opportunity to talk to somebody that worked behind the scenes in my favorite wrestling company that ever existed, World Championship Wrestling. He was a producer in WCW and he is the voice of the new world order. He is the one and only Neil Pruitt. Neil, how are you? New world order. NWO. Or life. Great, how you doing? <laughs> Good, bro. I love it. I love it. Good to be so with much. you, Carl. Thanks for having me down under. All right, excellent, Pretty special. Bro. I don't know if I've ever been on the other side of the world. Well, you are now. And uh, I, I'm just so excited to talk to you, Neil. Um, as I've said to you beforehand, massive NWO fan. I've got the shirt. I've got the flag. I mean, I've, I've, got, I've got the baby. You're doing it up. Oh, I've wow. I've got the hat. I've, I've got an NWO racing can cooler. Uh, I've got... Here's, here's, the extra. Right, mate, I've got a Ke- Kevin Nash air freshener. Uh, that's just going a little bit overboard there. But my, my, cherished, awesome. my most cherished possession, Neil, is... Uh, this right here, there was only 10,000 made, limited edition, the Outsiders pin set. And I have number 90. Oh, yes. That was a big seller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always found that to be a, 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 <laughs> I found it to be a very peculiar merchandise thing that um, got a lot of airtime. So I had to have it. And I got number 90 out of 10,000. Yeah, I wasn't up. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Yeah, our merchandise, we just didn't have it together, man. I'm telling you, we, we could have gained so much more money and just made millions off of good merchandising, but man, we just, our department was not it, man. Yeah, no, didn't I'm, have it, I swear. I've heard Kevin Nash talk a little bit about that in the past, about uh, oh. how he would be so frustrated at the company for not taking advantage of the certain situations oh, yeah. that mean, would arise. They never listened to our production people and stuff like that and just, they just let it go, you know, it wasn't no big deal to them, but wow, dude, we, we lost millions. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Neil, the first question I usually ask on the show, now that my shenanigans are out of the way, is uh, how did you first become a fan of wrestling before you uh, had the chance to work for uh, you know, or work in the wrestling business? That's a great question and probably one that will shock you. I wasn't. <laughs> That's fine. I wasn't a wrestling fan. <laughs> but maybe that's why they hired me in general. So that's kind of fun. But yeah. um, I was never allowed to mess with wrestling at all very much because I'm the middle of three boys. Yeah. So we fought a lot, of course. And my mom didn't want to encourage that any more than, you know, we already had. So we get in fights all the time. And uh, actually one of the neighbors down the street, I told the story before and this one guy that as a fan, he, he thought that was a pretty funny one, but there was these group of kids that lived down the street. They had four boys and they loved wrestling. And I remember seeing some of those magazines, you know, where they're, they had a crimson mask, as Gordon Sully would say, where their forehead's just bleeding. You can you know, see nothing but blood. 
he said that was fake blood you know, in the business. I was like, uh, no, it's not. But anyway, uh, she always thought it was fake. And we always knew it was contrived because we don't want it to be fake. But when we were kids, you know, we knew that if you get punched in the nose one time, it's over with. You know, you can't repeatedly rabbit punch somebody in the corner with their arms <laughs> down, not defending themselves and expect that, you know, not to be contrived. So we were like, this is so fake and hokey. But um, once I got into it, I really did appreciate the whole thing and the theatrics of it all and the theater of it all. And it was so fun to write and give things for people to say and kind of direct them and make them better than they thought they could be in front of camera. So that is what I'm a big fan of. But I, I agree to appreciate their art form, of course. Ah, that's and cool. That's a, it's an interesting way to to um, to come into an industry like that to not really have been a some diehard fan that has been watching for 20, 30 years before getting a job there. So maybe your perspective on certain things will be different from people that have been already obsessed with it for many, many years. Yeah, Carl, that's a good point. But I can go back a little bit. Um, actually, I, I used to work for a company that did multi-cameras. Okay. So we did a lot of wrestling programs with my mentor, Jody Hamilton, who was the flame and the assassin. And with that, I was told that I could kind of naturally do it pretty well with directing because I knew where to hide the cuts and things like that, you know, so they could, so they couldn't really see where the punches were landing or not. So they appreciated that a bunch. And I did have an introduction to a wrestling program before I ever got to WCW. But then after that show, I actually directed a nightly sports show. So I was used to dealing with professional athletes. That's back when Dominique Wilkins was playing, Vince Dooley from oh. the University of Georgia was still coaching. So I already had a, I guess, um, a lot of time with celebrities. So they appreciated the fact that I wasn't starstruck and I just treated everybody equally. I mean, I talked to Hulk Hogan like I'm talking to you right now. So yeah, it was no big deal to me. My dad said that you're no better than anybody else. Nobody's better than you. So with that, it's, it's always helped me throughout my career. And I think Hogan, I know, especially appreciated that. And, and Flair, too. I yeah, I think a lot of uh, people who are at that level of fame prefer it when people just talk to them just normally and uh, mm -hmm. don't grovel at their feet. Yeah, you know interviewing people. You know how it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so you've told me a little bit about what you did before WCW there. Uh, are there any other things that you did uh, after, I guess, you know, college or, or something like that um, before you, you got involved in, in what you ended up being really big with? Yeah, I was in the radio. I was on the radio in college. Um, my freshman year, I knew to get a job in television what I needed to do. And that was to get on the radio and just get some experience. So I had a 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. shift when I first started. It was only like two days a week, but it's one of those things where, you know, you got to start at the bottom. But what's great about it is at 7 a.m. is when the really good people came in to the radio station. So I was able to talk to them and hang around with them for another hour or two just to kind of gain some knowledge. And back then, way before you were thought of, uh, we did MTV basement tapes. And I got involved with that. And doing some of those in around Toledo, Ohio, is where I went to college. It's called Bowling Green State University. Everybody down south thinks it's at uh, Eastern Kentucky, or yeah, Eastern Eastern Kentucky or Western Kentucky. 
yeah, Western Kentucky University. That's Bowling Green, Kentucky. But it's actually Bowling Green State University. But I was also on the camera crew, which is a great resume builder for the national championships in hockey. So we actually won the national championships in hockey, beating Ohio State, Michigan, and then eventually Boston College. <clears throat> so that was a big deal for us because we're a small college in Ohio. But the funny thing about it is, Carl, is that everybody was from Canada except for one guy. He was from Alary, <laughs> Ohio, and he never played ever. <laughs> that was kind of my introduction into getting into television and really wanting to do this. And I knew what I wanted to do in 10th grade. Ah, that cool. That's lucky, man. I'm 33 and I still don't know what I want to do with my life. So that's funny. <laughs> um, another thing, too, I got to see uh, television from the inside out. My father was an electrician. Okay. And I got to see the actual inside of a television, like all these tubes, wires, speakers, and then that broadcast, like I'm talking to you across the world right now. That was just fascinating. It just, to me, is magical. And that really drew me in. Electricity in general just fascinates me. My father's being an electrician. I saw, you know, how it all kind of worked. And I was just amazed by it. Like, man, how does this work? It's, just, yeah. it's magic, man. It and really is. When you find out what you can do to manipulate cuts and how you can put pictures back to back and like record something like three or four times and turning it into a movie like we used to have to do sometimes or a fight scene where we only had one camera, but okay, hold on, don't punch him yet. Let me go to the other side. Remember when you did that back up about 10, 15 seconds, now do that. And then, you know, then we have the impact of the punch. So you could edit it together like a mini film. And that's what was fun about all of it. It's really, it's a joy because every day I didn't know what I was going to do. And then it was just always a surprise, like doing flair, Claire was going to talk uh, somewhere in the limousine, and I thought that Eric was going to drive the limousine, and Claire was eventually going to get beat up in the uh, in the field, which is one of the most controversial right. videos I've ever done. And yeah, I really wasn't appreciative of having to do it. Once I got it done, I was like, "Yeah, take way too long to do that," and it was very brutal. And I got a couple things written to me from mothers across the country, and that didn't make me feel too good. But that whole thing was just done on the moment. We had three lawyers, we got involved, and I had no idea what we were gonna do when we first started. I mean, I just met these people, and now we're making a film like within minutes. Yeah. Stuff like that happened often, which was really a blast. Wow, yeah, no, I will bring that up a little bit later, Tell but I do sure. remember that the Ric Flair beating up in a field, I thought, wow, this is, this is very confronting watching this. This is, this is a, little, a little on the yeah. nose, a little too strong. Much. <laughs> Like it, he, he was yeah, dead. Yeah, he was yeah, dead. No, that was too much. <laughs> he had to be dead. Um, but uh, it's the most so, controversial video I've ever done. Yeah. Um, so, can you tell me about how you got hired by WCW, or like the day you got hired by WCW, and your memories of that? Sure. Well, I was directing that nightly sports show that I was talking about. That was a really great experience because I was only twenty-five years old. Wow. So that was a big responsibility, but. It just happened that it was a low budget deal. And the guy that was directing from one of the major stations, he just got fed up with the show. He got sick of dealing with the host. So he didn't really have to have it. It was kind of side money for him. So he took off. So I, I, I happened to be uh, first hired as a camera person, but they really liked how I shot the packages because look, I said, look, I can run the camera, but probably what I'd do best is actually edit these videos together. So they really liked the fact that I could shoot my own stuff and edit my own stuff. This actually says one man crew. 
<laughs> right here on yeah. my hat. But it's one of those things where I had to be, you know, <laughs> had to be the one man <laughs> crew. But with that, I had a lot of control over what I shot and what I put on the air. So that was fun. And I was actually doing the audio for the show. And the show actually aired from 11, 1130. Well, with that, um, it was fun to see how it all worked. But I knew I could direct it because I was a multi-camera director doing the wrestling show and stuff like that. And a lot of different things like the platters and the drifters would come to Atlanta and down the big hotel rooms for like a major company like UPS or Delta or somebody. And we would direct those multi-cameras. So I was a good director already. But when that guy vacated the seat, I said, I stepped right into it. And um, actually one of the guys that worked with us, who was often my tape operator, I'd give him a stack of tapes, probably, you know, another probably 12 tapes with all different numbers on it, labeled on which one goes in what order back then. And he was the one that was really great at making those tapes roll just at the right time when I said roll it. And he was a producer at WCW eventually. His name was Chris Huber. And he asked me, he said, hey, you ever want to run audio for the wrestling? I was like, sure. So I never ran audio like that before, but I said, I can do it. So I went over there and then eventually I kind of started helping the guys with their verbiage as Macho Man would say, hey brother, give me some verbiage. But <laughs> these guys, I would like write some lines to them. I said, you know, if you're going to be this character here, here's some lines you might want to, you know, use these lines. I mean, that sounds more like a whatever their character was. So they liked that, that I was taking initiative, but I totally rearranged their whole system on how they did the recording of it after a little while. I said, look, I see a major flaw in your system here. I was going back and I saw that they would, what they would do is they would record, like say, say Sting would come in. Well, we had WCW Saturday night. We had Power Hour, Power Hour Canada, Worldwide, and, um, I think a Saturday morning show on TBS or whatever. WCW Pro? I, I forget. And anyway, yeah, we had Pro. Yeah, that's right. And uh, all these shows, well, they'd record just continuously recording on the tapes. And then when the producers would get back, they'd have to look through like 10, 12 tapes because we could only shoot 20 minutes at a time. Yeah. I said, there's a big flaw in your system, dude. I said, you mind if I like overhaul it? I said, no, go ahead and try what you want. I said, okay, cool. So what I did was I had a tape for every show. So Worldwide had its own, Saturday Night had its own, Power Hour had its own. So when I got back to the studio, I said, what do you, they, they go, hey, where's my tapes? I said, what do you produce? They said, oh, I produce Worldwide. I said, okay, here's your tape. They said, where's the other ones? I said, you don't need any other ones. They're all on this tape. They go, do you have to be kidding? I said, no. They said, we don't have to search through the other tapes? I said, no, it's all on the tape. They go, really? <laughs> I said, yeah. And then they went like, you know, you're my hero <laughs> thank you for making things so, organized <laughs> exactly so they loved that too and i was lucky that eventually um i had to produce like gordon Soli, brother and also got into uh producing with bobby heenan and, and gene oakland which was a total riot i mean they used to do they used to screw up and then when they'd screw up they'd still keep talking because they were in the, their bit right yeah and they were just like three or four in the room and they would just keep on going to make us laugh. You know, they knew it was never going to air. Yeah. But I mean, that's how, that's how, that's how much they love working together, how much they loved entertainment. But anyway, eventually <coughs> I even had uh, Tony Schiavone and, uh, and Gordon uh, and uh, Jim Ross kind of have me critique them, which you know, Jim Ross, uh, we get along great. Um, he's, he's a great announcer, obviously. And uh, 
I learned a lot just working around him. Yeah. For all his organization, things like that. I used to sit at the pay-per-views. I sit next to Dusty Rhodes and, and Jim Ross at the table and kind of keep them whatever they needed with information. And just eventually I moved into the truck and then I ended up directing W or excuse me, producing WCW Saturday night. Wow. The experiences cool. were just man, widespread, man. That was yeah. God bless me 10 times over. Yeah, absolutely. What what a what an amazing thing to be given you know the mothership uh at wcw set it out so so important especially you know in the, yeah. in the early 90s uh i uh, i wanted to know a bit about your day-to-day your -day duties like if you could explain to our listeners uh you know what would a typical neil pruitt week be from start to finish in wcw oh lord how long is this podcast? <laughs> you don't you don't have to uh, go over every excruciating detail if it's going to take too long. But well, when I first started, I did a lot of packages that would eventually go into WCW Saturday Night. When I did truck producing, Dan Bynum was the director who eventually went on to direct uh, uh, the Ring of Honor. He did that, and I worked for the Golf Channel eventually. Great guy. And he and I work with Keith Mitchell, who's the best truck producer ever was. He, he is actually the one of the major producers with AEW now. Yeah. And I just uh, would go in like at eventually at seven a seven a.m. to three p.m., which turned into five p.m. most days. But we would actually put the show together from start to finish, and we'd also do the packages that went in the other shows. And Kepper Rogers and I, Kepper Rogers was very instrumental in the look of the NWO and all the film, the clicks and all that, and yeah. the scratches on the video. And he was just a terrific editor, one of our senior editors. I got to work with him, and we did also Fix It Friday, it was called. So every show we had to fix uh, problems that came up. And it was one of those learning processes, like say somebody broke their leg, Sid Vicious snapped his leg in half. Yeah. You remember that? Anyway, when we would go to the different house shows, we'd advertise those on billboards. They called them on TBS. And they'd say, okay, Sid Vicious goes up against Sting in a cage uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the spectrum. Well, if Sid Vicious broke his leg, that can't happen. So then we'd have to get some where Gene said something else, Flying Brian, Sting faces Flying Brian, you know. So we'd have to insert that instead underneath his introduction of Gene Oakland because Gene wasn't going to fly back from Florida, yeah. you know, to put those audio inserts in. So we had to find weeks before where we had said that and make it make sense. So wow. all the fixing with the graphics and the audio and, and I learned so much from just doing that. So it was just an awesome experience and, and carried me through with the stuff I eventually did and doing now. Yep. Cool, man. Um, and so oh, let me tell you, uh, you're talking about the day-to-day, -day, by the way. Yeah. I wanted to throw this in there. So oftentimes I wouldn't I wouldn't know what packages were coming next. And uh, I would just have to fly out, like say to Charleston, hey Hogan wants to do this thing tomorrow with the NWO. You need to get on a flight tomorrow morning and get out there and shoot this. And I had really no idea what I was gonna do when I got there. So we'd make it up on the spot, which is like I said, a big challenge, a lot of fun. One time I remember I was working on a Lex Luger package and something happened. We 
So we were one of the first innovators to use nonlinear editing using Avid. Now Final Cut Pro and Premiere, Adobe Premiere have taken over that spot and some other programs, but it was the first nonlinear. So before we had to edit our pieces back to back and they had to go in chunks on the tape. So you had to really plan and pre-plan what was gonna go down before you even started. Well, then when nonlinear came in, these little bits and pieces, you could rearrange them all just like that, really simply. So you could change everything around. So that made it a lot easier to do what we do. And something like the NWO could really not have been done any other way. So I was able to take information that they said for like 15 minutes, they'd speak. And then I have to break it down to like three to five minutes, but I have to take all the best bites and all the best clips. So what I would do is I would listen to certain things that they would say, and I would have them do bridges, they call them, from one information thing to another. We can get about that later. But anyway, the uh, deal about Lex Luger, I was editing till 4.30 a.m. And because uh, my editor had screwed up. And I was like, damn, what happened? You know, this, this sucked. And it didn't, it just wasn't working. So I get a call at 9.30 a.m. They go, hey, Neil, where are you? I'm like, you know, what do you mean, where am I? I said, didn't you see I just like clocked out at 4.30? They said, no, we just want to know physically where you're at. We're not complaining that you're not here. We just want to know physically where you're at. So, well, I'm halfway to work. I'll be there about, I don't know. 9.45. They said, well, we don't, we don't want you to come into work. I said, well, what do you want to do? They said, we need to go to the Delta counter in Atlanta. We need to fly to Los Angeles. <laughs> For what? They said, oh, Hogan's going to be on the Tonight Show tonight. So we're going to try to get some footage of it. Okay. So <laughs> I remember once I got there, it was like, I don't know. I think they did it in the afternoon at 6 p.m. Pacific time, which was 3 p.m. Eastern. Yeah. And I had called my wife and said, hey, um, I'm not going to be able to make it home again for dinner tonight. She goes, would you like there till like 4.30 or something that last night? A.M. And I said, yeah. She goes, why can't you make it? I said, because I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> so weird stuff like that happened. And uh, it, was, it, was kind of, it was kind of interesting day to day. But um, wow. we also would just fly anywhere at any time. Yeah. All right. It sounds like a and being on sets with Hogan and right. movies and stuff. Yeah, wow. yeah, you never knew, man. <laughs> um, so feel free to edit all this. <laughs> uh, so you know, this may. I, I mean, I really wanted to make this about the NWA Neil because you were a big part of of the, you know, how it was uh, presented on television, and and that's what really made it work because it was not like anything that anyone had ever seen before. And it's been Thank attempted you. to be duplicated so many times since, and no one's been able to get it right since then, which is, you know, <laughs> the proof's in the I appreciate there. that. We, we didn't know if we we're getting it right either. We just kind of took it <laughs> Yeah, that's cool, man. Um, but I wanted to say what the NWA did for me. You know, I was um, a pretty shy kid, a uh, bit of a nerd, um, not very confident at all, but uh, I would say, Nash and Hall and Six and their swagger and the way they, you know, they carried themselves wearing the leather jackets and the bandanas and they were cool. And so I just kind of started to imitate that a little bit. And I would say, you know, that false bravado that I had eventually became bravado. So I owe a lot to the oh, wow. NWO for me. You know, eventually I 
did stand-up comedy. I actually wrestled as well myself oh, wow. for a couple of years. Uh, I sang in a while, and I still do sing in a rock and roll band. So um, that really Very led good. me to put, be a more confident person. So I just wanted to put that out there. That's why oh, wow. the WO means so Carl, much. let me go like this. Let me go like this. Thank you so much, man, because you know what? Um, it messes my mental psyche doing this NWO stuff. And the reason I'm saying this is because um, as a person, I'm pretty much an encourager of people and try to help them get the best out of themselves in front of camera and stuff like that. And one thing that bothered me for the longest time was that I got really good at making fun of people. And that's what NWO did. And I was really worried about how I affected young kids, especially. And to actually hear a positive come out of it. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. So I appreciate that story a bunch man, because uh I thought it was all the other direction, you know, for a long time. Oh, absolutely, man. Like, I, I'll tell you, it really had a, a positive influence on me. And, uh, you know, it kept me away from the, uh, you know, the people in school you probably shouldn't be hanging around with. And it kept me with my wrestling fan friends who, you oh, know. Oh, good. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I, I want to also ask you, uh, when did you first start to understand what this concept was possibly going to lead to when Nash and Hall are showing up on television, they're just in plain clothes and causing a ruckus. But, you know, I guess maybe after Hogan joined, when would you say you're, you started to see a vision that you might've had to um, throw in some ideas about where the NWA would go or the presentation of the NWA would be? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Um, so I was producing packages for WCW Saturday night with that first uh, initial thing when Hall jumped over, or excuse me, when Nash came in, jumped over the rails and all that. So I was, right off the bat, I was involved. And then eventually, Eric Bischoff and Craig Leathers came to me and said, hey, we want you to be involved with making this look for the NWO and we want you to, you know, take on that project. I'm like, oh, great. Because you could tell it's going to be something exciting, you know, uh, and having this all go down was like a top thing. Terrific. And they just, Eric Bischoff said, I said, uh, what do you want to do with this thing? He said, just make it look cool. I mean, you know, as a producer, person that does creative visuals, I couldn't ask for anything more than that. You know, it's yeah. free reign to do whatever you want. And I guess something that really helped a whole bunch was that I'd already done wrestling before at a small venue with Jody Hamilton, Deep South Championship Wrestling. And people always wanted to know what goes on behind the scenes. And one thing I th thought that was really not well done, and it, it's almost like, a, I guess, a predecessor to some of this stuff. And we didn't do it to the extent that I wanted to do, and I'll, I'll get to that part. Um, we never utilized the fact that all this expensive equipment is everywhere. Why don't you show it? Why don't you show what it feels like for the actor, wrestler talent to be video in front of the camera 
What does that look like? And what do they see? And how do they see each other? So that's when I gave Scott Hall my camera. It was my personal camera. And it was a VHS camera. I said, hey, you know, videotape each other with your antics, and then we'll edit that into the piece. So the very first video was really stylized and had a look to where they had an NWO logo going across their body. And that's very rarely seen, but that's the first part. So it was like more of a commercial looking project. And I, was, I actually ripped off Paul Mitchell. Paul Mitchell Hair Products back in the day did black and white stylized video. And that's where I stole that. And Kepper Rogers worked a lot with me on this. And Bill Tinsley, the cameraman, was just instrumental in a lot of this. And that, I thought the projector was cool. Um, the quick cuts, though, enabled me to do what I needed to do as far as who got time to do do and say what. So you got these big egos and personalities, right? Well, now you got to figure out when they're trying to dominate each other, how are you going to even this all out? How's this all going to work where they all look like stars and not just one of them dominate? And I think they had a little bit of strife, Hall and Nash did with Hogan when he first got there because they're all trying to figure out where they're at in the pecking order. You know, and all of them got egos and all of them wanted, and not to say that they really overdid it and was out of control with it, but I was able to use that style to level out the playing field. So I could give them each certain amounts of time, which was relevant to whatever we're trying to get across. And I think that was very helpful in the long run. And I think, I don't know if fans appreciated it so much, but I think the management did and the control of it of the information really kind of crucial. Yeah, absolutely. I remember listening to Kevin Nash talk about those first vignettes that were shot uh, and how him and Scott would, during there would be a break here or there, would be talking to each other about, I don't know if this is going to work, Hulk's doing his 1980s yeah. stuff. We need this to be exactly. different. How, how's the process of trying, you know, it's Hulk Hogan. <laughs> how do you how do you yeah. give Hulk Hogan notes on what you think he should be doing when everything he's done in the past always worked? So how do you convince someone like that to try something a little different? Well, Carl, that's a great point. And you'd be surprised um, how receptive Hogan was to what I asked of him. Um, there's a promo where Hogan has a, a world, and he has a bat, and he's talking, about, he's talking about Ted Turner and where, where he's dominant of the world and all this. Well, I brought that into the set and knew that could be a good prop. And then I told him, you know, okay, talk about Ted Turner, paint over Atlanta and Georgia, you know, and like, he no longer controls this. And so... He, he was all, all for that. He said, that's going to do and just cool with it. And Hogan and I, I don't know, uh, we had a really good relationship because I think he knew that I was out to make him look good and the company look good. And I really wasn't all that concerned about his celebrity. And I think he appreciated that a lot. Um, later on, we did the beating up in the field of flair 
I was talking about. Well, the good thing about it is Hogan knows the process of filmmaking. So only having one camera and shooting the interiors of that limousine where Flair was with all the lawyers and all that, and Eric driving and being a limo driver, all those interiors, we actually shot with, I had to run audio and produce and Bill Tinsley ran the camera. Well, we only had one camera. Yeah. So I wanted to do all the interior action shots of how Flair felt when Hogan came around the corner and what, what all that looked like from interior looking out the window and what it looked like when Hogan came around with that stupid mask on and Flair got the surprise of, oh, shoot, what's this going on? What's going on here? You know. And then the lawyers reacting like, oh, what the heck? Well, those are all shot on separate shots at separate times. So you had to edit that together and make it look like it all happened one time with a film, right? Which, which I got kind of bitched out about later. But I thought it made a more entertaining video. And that was a big chance I took as far as a producer goes, but that's okay. Uh, I think it I think people look back on it and they're they're fine with it. But so then I had to go outside the vehicle and I wanted to get shots of what does it look like with Hogan creeping around the corner, now looking in at Flair and the lawyers. I said, okay, Hulk, remember when you came around the corner and you peeked in and you said this and blah blah blah, and Flair reacted and whoa. I said, we need to back up in time a little bit. So I want you to sneak around the back of the vehicle and I want you to, you know, kind of come around the rear quarter panel and then come to the side and do that same thing just like you did. And I said, but your head position has to be right here so I can see Flair and I can see your head right there to the window, his head to the window and your head looking at him. So I need that angle, you know, so I can't have you overlap it and I, I need that perfect shot. So I need you to be right here. Exactly. So that's your, B position, got it? He said, yeah. So he backed up, okay, cued, boom, come right to his spot. I could see Flair, I could see Hogan, and boom, that was a perfect reaction shot. And he knew the art of filmmaking, and that, you know, I didn't explain that to people. Just, they do it because they know that you know what you're doing, and you have to do it right, and they don't, there's not a whole lot of bullshitting back and forth as to why I gotta do this. Dude, yeah. it makes it so much easier. Because all I had to do is say, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? And, oh, yeah, boom, boom, boom. See, it just really comes together, man. Yeah. It's a riot. Yeah, total, I love working with Hawk, man. Yeah, total professional, man. Um, yeah. So uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, if you have any stories of the, the one of the most epic uh, moments in, in NWA history when, uh, I guess this is, um, they're at the... Uh, Geez, I don't know. I can't remember the name of the venue now, but it's kind of like an outdoor venue and Jimmy Hart is screaming to the wrestlers in the ring that people are being attacked backstage. And it's when Nash and Hall with the baseball bats with Scotty Riggs, Bagwell and uh, Ray Mysterio getting lawn darted into the side of the truck. Uh, Man, Carl, you've but... come into the... Wow, you've hit on my favourite uh, street of all time. You oh man! Research, dude. You, you <laughs> call like, my agent before you started this. <laughs> I've seen the angle like two times overall now, so I um from start to finish. So, uh, and Savage jumps on the limousine. There's has to be a few stories about this segment because it's just amazing, and especially dude. with what takes place afterward with all the uh, ambulances and police officers. Charles, up. man. <laughs> dude i mean you know I, if you're like close to me i give you a hug right now you know we'd be like you know mates you know i guess you call it down there. <laughs> yeah for real dude wow you hit on my favorite shoot 
Well, well how much made it real. It was real. Everyone thought it was real. They did think it was real. How much detail do you want on it? Oh, as much as you think's necessary. Okay, cool. All right. I'll go. I'll go from start to finish with you. You can edit out whatever you don't want, right? <laughs> so they came to me, Kevin Sullivan, and Keith Mitchell, Craig Leathers. Today, we need to do this shoot where it looks like a riot is happening <laughs> in the back. Okay. Who's involved? Then the grocery list of names that you just named. Okay. So what little scenarios are you looking to portray? So when you saw Kevin Nash lung dart, as you say, which is a perfect explanation, Ray Mysterio <laughs> on the side of the trailer, that was going to start it off, right? Okay. So Okay, so we walked around to that. And then some of the wrestlers coming in after they found out that Kevin Nash was taking over. And then some of the mid-card guys getting attacked in the back. And then once, I don't know, Sting and maybe Luger coming in to confront the NWO. So I needed to see, okay, what all pieces and places are you talking in order of event order of events so let's write them all down okay so we went the lawn dart and they went the reaction from the ring somebody knows something's happening the mid-card guys come in trying to mess with kevin nash he beats them up severely then eventually we see um kevin nash and staying in the ring now they want to come in and confront the nwo eventually macho man's going to save the day all this melee is going to happen and then we're going to be in a limousine and we want we want macho man chasing limousine down the road i said okay cool so i said okay let me come up with kind of how this is going to work production wise in my mind and see if you think this is cool so what you have is elements of a situation that have to go in a certain order to make it make sense right so Hill Street Blues, if you're familiar with, I don't know if you have that down under there, but several series of like dramas that have been done on where it's very much like Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock, if you haven't seen this movie called Rope is One, the whole movie, just one shot. And the way they did it was they would go behind poles or tables and they or people and they'd make the camera cuts right there, but you wouldn't be able to tell that's where right. it was they could only shoot so much film at a time. Well, those are one shot, one takers or the camera's got to really be the POV, the point of view of the viewer. So they got to really guide you through this whole thing. So what I did was I then got whoever the camera person was involved, which is probably either Bill Tinsley, the guy I always work with, who I love so much, he did great lighting. We shot the majority of the NWO close-up shots and the, the, you know, the shaky stuff and just right at the right time when would they say something perfect, he really doesn't snap in, stuff like that. 
So it was probably the hammer guy named Tim Snyder Snake who I interviewed on Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. So Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro is on iTunes and iHeartRadio. So if you haven't heard it, you can get more stories. Just <laughs> a plug there, Carl. <laughs> so um, I then I didn't walk him through the process. I said, okay, so first lawn dart, boom, right? And then come out. We're gonna go walk backwards wide a little bit. Mid-card guys getting beat up. Then we're gonna pan to the right. We're gonna see severely lacerated, laying on the ground with a bunch of production people. They're kind of a triage type looking spot. And then we're gonna pan back and we're gonna catch this happening. And then eventually we're gonna work our way around to the backside where the limo is parked and it's gonna take off. And then Macho Man's gonna jump on the limo and actually, he's actually he actually held on to the to the hook to the uh, sunroof <laughs> yeah. remember, on the last shot. <laughs> yeah. So then after that happened and the camera person was knowing what we're gonna do, then I brought in the extras uh, and the wrestlers. I guess I brought in the wrestlers first. And then we kind of walked it through, and then I brought in the people that were in the back that worked with us all the time. The production crew that had to be involved on camera, the marketing people, whenever. I said, here's the deal though. This is the most important, most crucial part of all of this shoot. It is people know wrestling's contrived, okay? So if they look at the wrestlers, the wrestlers are doing their thing, like they always do. I said, however, if we want to make this look real, what makes this look real is us and our reactions as production people to the wrestlers. So we got to act like this is for real okay? because they're going to be, the, the fans are smart enough to look at you and say, what's going on? And I said, if you look terrified and you look like you can't believe this and boy, this is melee, it's going to sell it to nine ways of Sunday, buddy. <laughs> sure enough, it worked out and it did. And boy, did they got a barrage of calls at Disney, <laughs> um, their, their phone thing. Do I need to come over there? My kid's over there and he's visiting with his friend and they're at uh, the WCW and Disney and the back lot, and there's a riot going on over there. Do we need to come get our kid? Do we need to be fearful of all this? And they got in big-ass trouble. <laughs> but, man, it sold it good, and it worked, and they thought it was real. Oh. Two of those two. Yeah, absolutely it incredible. Real. It really was. That's um, when we know you got them, you know? When you when yeah. you, when you you get it that good, and people will all cooperate, and they all work out. And one thing that I didn't mention yet is, when we're going from scene to scene, the way they're triggered is crucial. So once the lawn dart thing happens, you know a certain amount of time something else happens, and then you get over to this. And I said, look, once the camera, after they're on that second bit where they're down there um, with problems happening with the person that got lacerated or whatever, when all the crews around them trying to help the person out, and maybe even the ambulances there, I don't know what happened. But then once we get to here with the camera, then your scene starts, see? So yeah. the scenes were triggered by where the camera was at that time. So we'd stay on this for so long and then we'd, and we walked it through a couple different times. But I think it was live. I can't remember that. I, I don't remember if it was live or recorded that section. It could have been, it could have been recorded. I, it could have been uh, pre-recorded, but I don't, I don't think so. I think it may have gone off live and that was really scary. It could have gone really bad. Yeah, it could have been live because it was outside, so the the, the light would have to be correct. 
Yeah, maybe. I guess so. It must have been. It must have had to be. I'm scared to even think about the fact that it was had to be live. <laughs> yes, it was. It worked. I thought. There's a there's a couple of those that really worked. <laughs> cool, man. Well, that's uh, I love that insight. And look, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of episodes on Secrets of Nitro, uh, Neil Pruitt's Secrets of Nitro, where you know you probably dive even more deeper into these things so everyone out there if you want to learn a little bit more check out the uh, podcast because it's uh it's very interesting and i believe i was one of the first people to uh uh give a little bit of a uh, feedback on uh, itunes for it so well thanks so much carl appreciate that that's cool um yeah i think i was like one of the first 30 people to like the facebook page too i was right on it <laughs> that's how much of it i said how much of a wcw nerd i am and uh you'd mentioned that you were quite prominent with wcw saturday night and i wanted to ask you a little bit about something called nwo saturday night uh and if you have any fun stories of that process with the guys wow um it was weird because the way I got to producing Saturday night was a fairly interesting story. Keith Mitchell's super busy. He's the he's the person in charge of all production. And he asked me, he said, Hey, didn't you direct an ugly sports show? I said, Yeah. And he goes, you know, you're familiar with timing and stuff like that, aren't you? Oh yeah. So so you're not a timing show? I said, certainly. He goes, um, you ever been interested in maybe producing WCW Saturday night? I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm thinking, you know, months of training or whatever, and yeah, this is all going to work. Yeah. So he goes, hey, how about coming to the TV taping on Tuesday night, you know, checking it out and just seeing what we do in the truck? I said, okay, cool. So I don't know about you, Carl, but when somebody's trying to tell me or teach me something, I'm writing it down. Buddy. I mean, I am taking diligent notes. And if somebody's going to take their hard-earned time and tell me their knowledge, I ain't going to have to have them repeat it. So I was taking really good notes just in case, you know. So then next TV taping comes around. I think it's two weeks later. He goes, hey, Neil, uh, you still interested in coming in the truck, you know, and checking it out? Yeah. Came over. Now that I know the process, I'm taking more notes like, okay, what time do they send out the announcer to start the crowd up? What time do they get the announcements to the set? What time do they do that? Blah, blah, blah. How's it all work? You know, what time? How do you cue this person? How do you cue that person? How do you, when you have the smoke that's in the entrance way, how do you cue those people to put the dry ice down on the water to make that fog come out? Uh, yeah. When do you, how do they open the doors? How does that work? So then once you find it out, so there's a pattern, obviously, that a lot of things go through. And you're figuring out, okay, if it's on tape, then, you can separate the wrestling from some of the announcements and some of the announcers and some of the interviews on the set, things like that. So you can shoot those out of order if you want to. It depends, I mean, how it's all going down. So, but those are all the things you need to know to be producer of the show. So got that down. So Keith comes, so um, yeah, I just want to ask you, um, next two weeks, TV taping, he goes, are you going to come back to the truck and See how this goes down? I said, yeah. I said, dude, why do you keep on asking me? I said, you know, I'll, I'll come there every time until you tell me not to come, you know? He goes, okay, I was just asking. I said, well, why are you asking? He said, because I won't. I won't be there. I was like, say what? He goes, 
Uh, no, I won't be there, but you will. Oh, really? man. <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, oh, boy. I've seen the show twice. I mean, I mean, I'd been backstage enough to see how it all went down, but not in the truck, you know. So now I had a whole two weeks of training, and now I'm producing WCW Saturday Night. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So that was nuts, dude. But I had some, uh, you know, I mean, they, they, they had it down to a science. They all knew what they're doing. Yeah. It wasn't, um, it, it sounds like an intimidating, impossible task when you talk about it as an outsider, but they had it down so well, they could have probably done it without me. You know, yeah. That was the introduction of it all. But, I, you know, I never had anything to do with that NWO Saturday Night bit. No, okay. No, um, no, but I was thanking God that they never did the NWO um, Monday Nitro. No. Oh, thank God. It's a one-trick pony, man. NWO yeah. is a one-trick pony. It would have been a disaster, and I didn't want to be anywhere near involved with it. Yeah, it, so. it, um, as a fan, uh, looking back now, I'm glad it never worked out because it was yeah. they were already all over the show. <laughs> a mess. Uh, especially at that point. But um, I, I kind of uh, wanted to ask you, you know, uh, Obviously, you're an integral part to the early days as the brand of the NWO was growing um, as it takes place. Could you tell me about who else was collaborating on this concept to make it what it was? Obviously, Eric, uh, Nash Hall and Hogan. Is there anyone else that you would give a shout out to for being a part of this amazing uh, part of history? Yeah, Kevin, Kevin Sullivan, without question. Um, he may have been the originator of the name New World Order. And it's actually in the Bible. Um, they talk about that, which was kind of disturbing a little bit for me too. Being a Christian guy, it's like uh, one of those things where you don't really know if you should be doing this or not. <laughs> I guess and you have to figure out that you're doing a job and it's it's all play acting and it's not real, but well, I'll tell you, it, it doesn't mess with you, I gotta tell you. Um, it was a concern of mine, and to a certain degree, maybe my ego got carried away a little bit because I started to get a little bit of fame and fortune out of it, and people started to recognize who I was and what I was about through that. Yeah. But, uh, I eventually got hobbled in life and got back to normal. <laughs> but it was uh, one of those things There was an exciting ride, you know, and to see people liking it internationally. I mean, you know, I'm talking to somebody from Australia right now about it. Wow, that's crazy, dude. You think about that, I'm from... I'm from a small steel mill town in Northeast Ohio. I'm from Levittsburg, Ohio, dude. <laughs> I mean, just to even imagine that I'd be here talking to you is just, I can't believe it. I really can't imagine. Oh, that's cool, man. Well, I feel I the same way. I mean, I, I I was a massive fan of WCW back in the day, and I get the chance to talk to one of the guys that was a part of the angle that made me, you know, shaped me as a teenage boy into becoming a man, you know, I'm been obsessed with it and it's it's 2020 and i'm still obsessed with it i was actually laughing earlier because i was like bringing all my nwo stuff out and i just went to check my phone and i laughed because i totally forgot that the background of my phone is the nwo logo it's just like carl <laughs> oh man girl that's awesome wow <laughs> hilarious um i wanted to ask you about oh, your opinion on <laughs> biggest biggest icon in wrestling um the biggest icon in wrestling, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> the two Michigan dog-faced mutts, the Steiner brothers. The was... guy who should have stayed in junior league hockey in Canada, Chris Jericho. 
<laughs> I was actually just that's a few I remember. NWO sold out um, the very first mm. edition. I wanted to know your thoughts. Hey, hey it's on been, that. been good talking to you, Carl. I got to go. Um, <laughs> it's been good talking to you on this podcast. Uh, Kids Neil Pruitt think it's a WCW Nitro on iTunes and iHeartRadio. And man, down under has been good, but I'll see you later. And thank you very much. And appreciate you having me. Okay. And there you go. Yeah, I mean, I've had, again, when Kevin Nash has talked about it in interviews, he always said, you know, Eric, he would say, Eric, you know, we're cool. This is the, this is anti what we all were all about. Why wouldn't we have hot girls out there? Why do we have big old women out there for Miss NWO? Why do we, why is the setup look so kind of tacky? We're rocking up on garbage trucks, things of that nature. What's, what's, what happened here? <laughs> That's a damn good question. And the question, the answer is they did not get production involved much. That's why it was a disaster because they went off on their own and didn't tell us really much was happening and get our opinion on anything. And that's where it all went to, you know what? Yeah. And it was crap. And we were all like, this sucks. Um, the garbage truck scene, the entrance, all that, the parade, that was a blast um, for me because I was in a warm, cozy hotel room with my ass against the window. Uh, just showing those guys <laughs> that the moon's still out. I literally pressed my ass against the window, showing that my I was in my warm, cozy room, whether freezing my butts off outside. Actually, there, there's a, like a little bit of a a lottery as to who was having to shoot that because they knew it was like ten below. So some of the camera people actually drew the longest straw and didn't have to go out and shoot that. Well, I had to edit that the next morning. The whole parade from machine to machine. And the old school, you got that shot, and then you got this shot, and you got that shot, the old school of how to produce. But thank God, the person I was working with, the editor, who is often a director and did a lot of HBO boxing, Mike Miller, was one of the best at editing that style of video because he did lots and lots of packages for the NFL and whoever the hell else, probably the Braves and just countless people. He's just a true pro, dude. So he and I, got up in the morning at 7 a.m., went out to a Turner truck that did not have heat, did not have heat. And it was still probably maybe 30 degrees in the truck, maybe, with our fur coats on and our gloves. And we edited that whole parade together. And it worked out pretty good because when we talked about how to shoot it, we talked about how we wanted to not show a whole lot of wide shots so you can individually pick out where you want to put people where. Like six, I remember, you know, six wasn't all that involved a lot of times speaking wise and he really wasn't that good on camera, but every now and then you come up with something really clever. Well, I just remember one of his, he was hanging out the truck and it was just a really good shot of close up, but you couldn't see where I was at in the parade. So all those shots, might not have been anywhere near where you thought they aired in the parade. Sorry about that. Um, my battery's getting a little bit. Uh, so we rearranged it 
because what we did was we watched all the tapes, okay? And we had that super wide shot, which is really great of all the garbage trucks coming down with all the flags and everything, which looked terrific, I thought. Whoever set that shot up, that was just genius. I think somebody was on a scissors lift or something, or maybe up on the like a second story balcony of a parking lot and with their okay. camera shooting down that way. So I think that's how they got that shot, which looked terrific. Yeah. And that was a pretty easy shot for whoever shot that. And I think probably Bill Tinsley was a senior camera person. He probably took that position because, you know, um, let the other guys do those other shots where they're hanging off the garbage trucks. They're kind of dangerous. Let them do that. And they could have slipped and fall. You know, I mean, Lord, you know, these camera people, they put themselves to some issues to be able to get some of these shots they get. I mean, they're some of the true heroes of our business. Yeah. I mean, they put themselves in harm's way for real. And uh, these got some really great shots. I mean, I just remember having so many views from, well, we watched all the tapes and we wrote it down all the time codes because what happens is, is when you're not doing a multi-camera and I, I'm hopefully I'm not going into too much detail on how production works. No, that's cool. You set this, you set each camera to a time. So say the parade went off at 9 p.m. So all the cameras read 9 p.m. at the same time. So you can cue the tapes up to figure out, okay, well, if this camera is getting this angle at 9, 10 p.m., then let's go to the other angle and see what that looks like at 9 p.m. exactly or 9, 10 p.m. So you were able to kind of see what was happening in real time. But first, you watch all the tapes all the way through. You find out where the club stops are at and where the audio information and the sound bites are going to come from. Then you figure out where to space them out. And then you figure out how to do the intro. Show the wide shots, show everything's going on, who's doing what. Then, you know, you want to go to one of your main characters first. And then you want to go to the second main character. And then you want to maybe go to six. And then you want to come back and show a little bit more of the trucks going down the road. So there's a series of storytelling that has to go through your mind and a plan that they have to formulate as you're doing this. So we write down a bunch of time codes and information on what we want to air where. Then we go, okay, we like this shot, but this statement here, in the same, same way we kind of had to edit NWO, this statement works, but we need it to go here. Right after he says that, it leads into that thought, which goes there. So let's, okay, after we put Paul saying this, Let's put six saying that right after it, even though it was way later in the parade. Right. So that figuring out that how that all works and how it all goes down is probably the most important part of what I did. And it helped me figure out that. It really told the story that way. So it's just how, how it all came together. If you're a film or video person, maybe interesting. But for the regular family, you know, probably see what they see on the screen. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, I will say, yeah, we sold out. Uh, Nineteen ninety-seven for me was was uh, was in a, 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 a particularly amazing. Like it's just a confusing show. Like I just expected it to be yeah. really cool, but it, it just it, it just it wasn't. Been. Yeah, it should have been the most it coolest thing ever, and it should have been like a yearly thing. Uh, never consulted me. Never consulted us at all. Now. One Big thing mistake. I didn't, was highly involved with, though, was the open. So hopefully you like the open. I know it fell to crap after that. But they didn't really shoot it the way I wanted to shoot it either, live on the screens. And I don't know why, uh, but it just didn't work. But the first part was where Eric is at the, that podium with all the microphones in front of it. 
and he's talking and all the NWO is going back and forth like, you couldn't handle the truth and all that. Do you remember that part? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, Eric's, at, Eric's at the podium. He's got the he's level jacket on. Yeah. He's making this big speech, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's a total ripoff of Citizen Kane, the movie Citizen Kane. Yeah. Kemper Rogers and I were both big fans of that. So Kemper was kind of the art director on this. We had um, the guy, uh, Jeff Bornstein, who likes AEW. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah, AEW. A A yeah, AEW. Yeah. And he used to be with the Impact Wrestling. And he was, he's one of the best people to work with lighting wise. And I hope to have him on Neil Pruitt's tickets to WCW Nitro because he's got a whole lot of stories because he's been with so many different com companies gone. But yeah. he lived this with a lot of his really great lighting people. And the lighting with all these flashes going on, like there's a big press crowd or whatever yeah. taking photographs, you know, boom, boom, boom. All the lights going off and all the glitter coming out from the ceiling and the confetti and the big party. Look, we got a great show going on. That shot that was shot in Chicago. And we shot that about two or three weeks ahead of time. And again, we shot with multiple cameras, not with a switcher, not punching anything at the time, editing it all together later. So that worked out really well because Kev was so highly involved with how that was shot and how that was working together. Well, Kemper and I wrote the script. This is kind of an interesting story. <clears throat> so we wrote the script. We knew what you know had to go down as far as the message goes. And the cool thing about it was is when Eric was a talent, he'd listen to every word we say. And he'd do whatever we needed him to do. Eric was one of the hardest working people in front of the camera you ever saw. And man, he was great. And we'd just say, hey, can you do this and whatever? And yeah, man. And and by then, all those guys did that. They all were cool about it. Now, Kevin Nash, at the beginning, kind of a pain in my ass, to be honest with you. And he knows <laughs> this, and I told him. So he, if he hears it, he isn't going to care because he, he's heard this before. Yeah. I said, you're a pain in the ass sometimes to work with. I'll tell you that. And he goes, what? You know, just kidding around. He knew. Yeah. Because sometimes doing the NWO stuff, we had to, like I said earlier, we had to have certain bridge statements, transitional statements, when we shot all the MWOs, we shot for 15 minutes. When I'd remember them saying something, then I'd hear something else, but those two pieces wouldn't fit together. Well, this gap had to be bridged. How are we gonna do that? Well, if Hogan says this and Hall says that, well, Kevin's gotta say this to make all three these line up and make sense. So sometimes, no kidding, I'd be standing there and. Hall and Nash would be right next to each other. Kevin would not do and say what I wanted him to say by me putting my words in his mouth. So I'd have to say, Scott, can you get Big Sexy to say this for me, dude? Because I, I don't think we'd go on if we don't. <laughs> it was that big of a problem. And I, they're standing next to each other. I said, can you have him say that for me? And that's sometimes how he had to do it. <laughs> it was just odd. It was just so odd. I mean, I know he was playing a rib on me and he's kidding with me, but it took uncomfortably long because we had to get shit done, dude. We had other shoots to do other than hit. <laughs> See what I mean? But I mean, I know he was joking probably, but I didn't know for sure. But it just it became a pain sometimes. And I know probably later on they just talked about it and they laughed their asses. It was cool about it, but the whole 
the whole open worked great. And then I don't know if you remember, but once it went to black and white, then we played the logo out in living color. <laughs> NWO in living color, which was, you know, a big deal because now we'd never seen NWO in, other than black and white, right? So we peeled that whole thing back. Well, now we got a shoot where we have Hulk Hogan in the middle, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. And now we want them to do a little bit of conversing back and forth between three different projectors. So we have three cameras lined up on them equally in the same studio. But I said, you can never cross that path of this person's camera to look stupid. So you can't hand gesture over on Hogan's and vice versa. So we had to separate them out, you know, kind of like that COVID, you know, six feet. So then they all kind of conversed together. Well, when we shot it for sold out, they just didn't have the right camera angle on it. It just didn't look right. It looks so much better if we just had a solid shot of the three screens and not a super wide shot where whoever did the lighting on the NWO, that killed me too, seeing that, seeing a regular N, you know, and in fact, it should have been the small N, you know. Yeah, yeah, it, it yeah. Just, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's that's part of the logo. That is the logo. Don't do this. It's not what you want. Yes. It's a branding thing. It's a branding thing. You got to have it. And if you don't, so that was a disaster. So, and once once the open was over with, we really had nothing to do with it from that point on. Oh, really? Production didn't know what's going on. We had to follow along, and yeah, it was bad. I mean, production wasn't involved, and that's why it sucked. But good wrestlers know. And I just talked to Ernest the Cat Miller the day before yesterday, as a matter of fact, and he told me that one of the best things they told him advice-wise when he first got into the business was get along and get to know the production people because they yeah. can decide to make you look good or bad yeah and boy he did and man did he go fast one of my favorites said, one of my favorites you should write a book on how to get into professional wrestling and make a big splash right off the bat because you were one of the ones that did it yeah so that's why it was a disaster i did like the lipstick camera and I did tell them that, look, when they're coming down the aisle and it's their opponents are not NWO, we need to make fun of them. Yes. But we need to really put over Hogan and them when they're coming down the aisle. Like the biggest icon in wrestling, Paul Hogan. <laughs> you know, we need to really put them over. But boy, we need to make fun of those other guys when they come down and up there. So... I'm wearing red today, um, not only for Christmas, but Ohio State. So the Ohio State University, the Buckeyes are my team and what I grew up loving as a kid growing up in Northeast Ohio. Well, the Steiner brothers are from this state is just north of Ohio and it starts with this letter, okay? <laughs> so those guys are not fans of my team and I'm not fans of theirs. <laughs> so we always would rib each other about who was winning the games and whatever and who was dominating who. And unfortunately, Michigan was winning quite a bit. I think. But uh, I just wanted to really make fun of them when they came down the aisle. And I think Scott was legitimately pissed. <laughs> <laughs> if you watch him, he goes like that. When, when the announcement comes on, the two Michigan dog-faced mutt, the Steiner brothers. <laughs> 
internet Tuesday. We got to work together not too long ago when we destroyed a Shoney's because um, Scott was um, wanting to open up a Shoney's. So hey, he said he, he called me up because he knew. Do we need to get the band back together? I said for what? Because we want to wreck down the Shoney's and we want to do a like a video like we used to do to promote it. I said cool, and I'll make this quick. So he had this really good idea. I thought and Scott. He had some pretty darn good ideas for videos. I think maybe having gone through WWE's process, because they had it honed, man. I mean, those guys really do. They know what they're doing. And I probably could have learned so much working up there. But And, and Flair asked me why I didn't if we collapsed. I said, I'm sick of using a cattle prod to get people to do stuff. He goes, you don't have to do that up there, buddy. I said, why is that? He goes, Vince has them right like that under his thumb. Yeah. He said, they're there, ready to go, ready to do what you need them to do. And anytime they tell you, I said, wow, that's totally different than WCW. He said, yeah, you'd really like it. Anyway, wow. I didn't really want to go to Connecticut. I, I wasn't a really big fan of the, the, uh, the, the process and the product up there. Uh, Vince McMahon was very respectful for me every time I met him and was really appreciative of the NWO and the work that we did and all that. So, you know, he was cool with it, but I, I never really had a major desire to go up there. Yeah. Let me see, where was I? Um, I don't think of where I was. I'm uh, the Shonies. Yeah, so the Shonies thing. So evidently, um, Scott had access to this front loader, which is like you know one of those things with the big tires on and the, the big lift on the front of it, where you yeah, can yeah. like get dirt and dig it, and like a bulldozer looking thing. Yeah. So <laughs> he had this most awesome idea, which was to take the dog face gremlin his brother and put a helmet on him and chain him to the front of that front loader. So now his head's going to be a battering ram to wreck down the Shoney's like a wrecking ball. Hilarious <laughs> idea. <laughs> so we get this plan and I said, look, we need to make it look like there's people still eating in there. So and this place is totally gutted. So we, there was a table and chairs in there, though. And there were some friends of his that wanted to watch how we did the video. I said, beautiful. I said, let's set them in there. Let's set them at the table. And what I want to do is get a silhouette shot looking outside of the window. And you can see their silhouettes of them sitting at the table like they're eating. But since the light is coming in uh, from the background so good, it's going to rear project them really nicely. So I said, they're going to scatter when, that, when they see that battering ram coming there <laughs> so i want them to just dissipate right yeah so we did we did a shot where we strapped his brother in but that never aired we strapped him in with chains and everything and then we had him drop and scott i didn't know he's gonna do this he literally drove down the real road to get to the shonies i thought he was gonna just there's a little access road i thought he was gonna do it. no he drove down the real road with his brother in the front like going up and <laughs> <laughs> and drove past the camera, but it looked great. Anyway, <laughs> then we had a battering ram, right? So then, obviously, we had to do a reverse angle cutaway where you see the, where you see uh, Dogface Gremlin coming coming at the camera, you know, with his with his battering ram, like getting ready to, you know, <laughs> take the impact. So we shot a close up of that happening, like right from the door where we're gonna gonna hit it. And then we have to do a another take where you do the reverse angle cutaway and get obviously. Dogface Gremlin out of there. And then we got to go over the shoulder. We can see him hitting the Shonies, right? So then once we had him bash into the Shonies, then I said, well, look, I won't be here, but you have to take a cutaway 
you have to you have to do this shot for me when this place was all wrecked down and i said when you start it you have to have scott come out of the cab that he's in and walk towards where he's got to figure out where his brother is what they did was they figured out some hilarious thing to do which was they did the shot perfect and i think scott's wife actually shot the shot unfortunately they didn't have the right camera uh settings so it looks really granular and crappy but it really worked anyway as a gopro they shot it with so scott comes out of the out of the truck follows him over and he, now he's looking through his brother through the rubbish and there's there's crap everywhere i don't know what you call it in australia but they're just drywall and just yeah i think they call it yeah. rubbish in england they just got all this trash here right yeah so then he starts getting stuff out of the way and pulls this big old piece of drywall up and there his brother sits straight up and he has drywall in his mouth and he spits it like ricky you know he's looking like ricky's like moving stuff around and all of a sudden his brother sits up and spits his drywall out of his mouth he goes what are you doing? He goes, I feel good. Let's go to Shoney's. But anyway, it was just, you know, it was just so fun to get back into the, uh, you can hear by the excitement of my voice, how fun it was to get back into that mode again and do that again with those guys. You know? Yeah, um, that's cool, man. That, that wow, story's that's probably really... a lot longer than you needed to be. No, that, that was great. I really liked hearing that. I didn't know that you got to reunite with the Steiners and have a bit of fun together. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you <laughs> ribbed each other over, uh, over a bit of uh, football as well. Um <laughs> So I wanted to ask you about, you know, it, the NWA angle, and we don't have too many more questions left here, Neil, um, but it goes from the outsiders and the hostile takeover and no all these cutting edge things taking place and stuff we've never seen before. But then it gets to a point where now the NWO is just regular television, uh, regular wrestling. When do you think that the angle stopped working? Well, one of the things I liked, but I wasn't involved with, that I had to edit it, which was, it was pretty funny when they had the empty arena. And it's weird to go, think back at COVID season now, where they'd have the empty arena and then they'd have Nick Patrick in a mask and he'd be refereeing. Mm. Who, by the way, is a great talent. I mean, Nick, he eventually really became good at talking. And frankly, I didn't know that he could ever really do that. But he was a really good character. He was. And luckily, they utilized him pretty well. And I, one thing I really loved about the NWO was when they do the rock, paper, scissors as to who is going to actually go first in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that was just, I thought that was genius how they started yeah. their matches. But anyway, that was fun. But I really started thinking that um, it started to go really wrong right when the NWO Red and all that came around. I mean, I had nothing to do with any of that. I thought it was goofy. And then you start splitting it off. You just don't really know how to end it or if you should end it. And I don't know that ever was intended to end. I think Eric had done interviews about that. By the way, I'm on his 83 weeks. His open, I'm, I'm on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't know that he ever really wanted it to end. And I think it, it just <coughs> didn't have an end. Maybe it should have. Um, it's not all, it wasn't all about the NWO, the whole thing. I mean, I I got probably out of it kind of after the first initial startup of it all and the look of it and developed that, you know, like I said with Camper. And that worked well, but after that, we just, people started doing their own factions of it, which was fine. 
and by the way, Kemper did a really great one with Eric. Um, Eric was talking about Larry Zabisco. He's going to kick him right here in the jaw. Yeah, he's yeah. on a motorcycle and it really worked really great. He did a terrific job. But like when they made fun of Flair with six wearing that nose and all those kind of shoots like that, and some of the behind the scenes in the locker room and they're doing whatever. I really wasn't involved much with those parts. So only uh, when you saw the bigger sets and the backgrounds and the moving stuff or the some of the uh, one of my favorites actually was when Macho Man did it and he was the NWO going against Diamond Dallas Page. Yeah. And one of the grossest things I remember seeing that I didn't put it in there, but Kemper and I kind of tag team edited on some of these NWO stuff. So I would get to sometimes get the general idea of what I wanted to have story-wise and what I thought they needed. Then he would kind of come in sometimes and fix it up and make it look really good and put in some flash frames here or rolls there, scratches there, whatever. So I remember I walked away from Macho Man, the Macho Man when talking about um, Diamond Dallas Page. Well, I think I did a deal where I had uh, Macho Man so I, are you seeing me in reverse or are you seeing me in regular? Like, is my hat readable or is it backwards? Uh, yeah, no, it's readable. Yeah. Okay. So it's readable in the way it's supposed to be read? Yeah. So the NWO, what I did was I had a, and I stole this off a video, it was on MTV that I really loved, where they had a piece of glass in front of the camera and they wrote on this glass backwards. And I know this is going off to the edge a little bit, but there's a guy named Al Roker in America that yeah. is eventually on. He, are you familiar with him? Yeah, I know. He's he on the Today yeah. Show. Yeah. Anyway, he was a weather guy, but when he was in Cleveland, Ohio, where a lot of people got started and watched the TV I watched as a kid, he would write backwards on this glass and it was readable forwards on our side. So, what I want to do is I want to have Macho uh -huh. Man spray N W O. Right. I think that's readable your way. Yeah. I'm seeing myself backwards, but hopefully that worked. <laughs> well, then once he got the O, he went, and I spit on you, Diamond Dallas Page, or something like that. And he spit right in the center of the O, and all this loogie just, <laughs> I thought it was one of the most vile, nasty, gross things I've ever seen. It's so tremendous. Kemper loved it. Kemper loved it. He thought it was hilarious. <laughs> so he put it in with Kemper on this one. What's that? I think I'll sign the camp from this one. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> he thought it was hilarious and just totally off the wall nasty. And I was like, are you serious, dude? We could air that. He goes, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> like, whatever. So you can you can thank Kemper for that grossness bit of television. And they, they, <laughs> I was surprised that the TBS let that go. Yeah. Because I thought that their standards and practices would not let that fly. Yeah, I've heard a lot about standards and practices for WCW. Um, oh, wow. But, uh, I, I want to ask you this because it seemed like, you know, those those black and white NWA promos, uh, the, you know, the following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. Uh, Can we do it for you? <laughs> sure. I'll do it for you. <laughs> me, 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 me. The following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. <laughs> It's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite things because I knew what was about to happen was exciting. Um, but it, it went from what they were to 
essentially just to sell merchandise. Uh, we are part of the ones that were about just selling the merchandise. You know, K-Dog's got a new T-shirt or the, the Outsiders pin set, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I, I don't know that I did more than a couple of those. Right. Okay. I, I know I, I'm sure as heck didn't do K-Dog's. Uh, I may have done the Outsiders something with it. T-shirts or something, but for the most part, no. I, I, I mean, obviously, did the voiceover for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of how that came to be, which was. Um, you want me want to hear the story about how I become the NWO voice? Yeah, sure. Okay. And see, I don't know what people know about the NWO down there or anywhere really, or what your show knows about it anyway. So I got to kind of think about <laughs> what might be entertaining. So I had. Talk, been talk, we've been talking about who's going to do the voiceover. I think Craig Leather's asking. So who do you want to do the announcing? So, well, it can't be anybody we ever heard as far as WCW goes. Uh, any of the announcers, like, we can't have it. I said, because it just won't make sense. You know, you got you to gotta totally break it off and just do something totally different, entirely creatively different. He goes, well, you got anybody in mind? I said, yeah, no doubt. He goes, who? I said, well, there's this guy that in Atlanta, his name's Kevin Eubanks. And he works for this alternative radio station called 99X. I said, I just love his voice and how it's so different and how he sounds. And that was a very creative radio station at the time. I mean, it was cutting edge for real. It had bands you never heard of on mainstream radio. It was just really, really fun. And uh, I'm kind of, I was kind of in the new wave and I liked rockabilly. So I like not the mainstream pop. I mean, I like pop, but I like different kinds of alternative type music and they played it. I like the clash and stuff like that. Cool. So he goes, I don't know. He goes, uh, you know, I guess we could hire him. He said, what does he sound like anyway? I said, well, he sounds like this. He kind of sounds like 99 X, like that. He says, why don't you do it? Okay, <laughs> whatever, I'll do it. <laughs> wow so it made it really convenient for me as a producer not having to call somebody up and have them come in the audio booth and get it all set up and then you know once you get out and you get into the story now you want somebody something else to be said and you have to call them back again and get them in there and you got to make the levels all the same and get the audio just you know how it is when doing a podcast yeah. you get to have your stuff down in and when you don't I mean you know this from one day to the next when you talk your voice could be totally different very convenient for me to have my own voiceover talent right sitting in my own body <laughs> so that was very advantageous <laughs> um so uh still again i said before not many questions left but i wanted to ask you about the nwo elite and your thoughts on when the wolf pack and the black and white became one in uh early 1999 uh, it was kind of like that final run. You've already talked about Flair being, <clears throat> excuse me, beaten up out in the field. Um, but <clears throat> I remember seeing like, you know, Lex Luger did one of those old school promos again, and those things were making more of a comeback. Uh, he was talking about Goldberg. Unfortunately, the feud never got to uh, hit to a pay-per-view because Luger broke his arm, I believe. And uh, Scott Hall went to rehab. Scott Steiner, I think, hurt his shoulder or his back. Um, 
Hogan injured his knee. So like this thing had a good three, four months of early 1999. And I don't care what anyone says. I love the finger poke of doom because it pissed people off. Um, oh, wow. But wow. I, 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 that was done I, in the Georgia Dome, I believe. Yeah, huge. In front of like 10,000 people or something. It was crazy. It was a crazy <laughs> night, dude. Yeah, man. Um, but I want you just to hear what you thought about, Finger you know, poke them. Of doom. Yeah, uh, them uniting the 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 black and the and the red, um, and putting them together as the NWO elite, and obviously how it it kind of fizzled out because of all the injuries of all the main guys in that group. Um, so let, uh, I just want to know what you thought of it. Yeah, um, the figure poker doom was very bizarre for sure, and it got a heck of a reaction. But um. I guess one thing I really didn't like that I don't think they had to do, and maybe they did it for their own entertainment, which was kind of really expose the business. Um, so Jody Hamilton, old school, work with wrestling too, Billy Graham, I mean, some of these older wrestlers. And the fun part about it for me in the beginning was they kind of Jody kind of kept me in kayfabe uh, for the longest time, like not even acknowledging that it was fake, you know. And me knowing it was, I just let them play whatever they needed to play and bring me into the fold however they needed to bring me in. I was trying to not be forceful about any of it or, you know, call their career whatever. I just respected them for what they did and they respected me for what I did. And I had a great crew. Again, none of this could be done without the great crews we had, WCW and that I frankly had every step of my career as far as wrestling and directing and stuff like that. You can't, you can't do this alone. Even though this has, you know, one man crew. I mean, that's kind of what I am now and what I've done with a lot of projects. But when you get a collaboration of people that are just terrific crew members, man, you just, boy, that feeling is hard to beat. It's like being on a championship team every day. Every day you go in there, you're going to be a winner. You know it going to come out no matter what happens you're going to do your best and so are they and they're going to go the extra mile to make it happen but uh with all that collaboration of all the guys the nwo red and all that i just the whole way i wasn't any of it um didn't really understand it that was just somebody else not not not, not that i had good ideas about how to all make it all work but i just didn't understand a lot of it and uh I just really thought maybe it run its course and yeah. ended somehow or whatever. But at some point, I believe the inmates were running the asylum. Yeah. For real. They just did whatever they wanted and it happened and it was, it didn't work. No. Um, and, and, and I want to, to bring up something that was more weird was, you know, when that whole thing had kind of broken up the B team, the, the, the guys who were still in the black and white, your Brian Adams, your Scott Norton's, your uh, Horace Hogan's, um, Vincent, uh, Stevie Ray, they were still carrying on this NWO thing, even though the guys that started the thing weren't even a part of it anymore. They were off television. They still kept this thing going for months on end. I just, I just wanted to briefly mention that. It was kind of like, I don't know why they kept 
the NWO thing going at that point. It just seemed so, I just felt bad for the guys that were still in there that there's no fresh ideas for them and they're still carrying these NWO colours that at this point are barely even mid-card. They're, you know, lower mid-card. Um, I don't know. I just, I yeah. just felt it was important to mention that. No, I agree. It just, oh, it just, yeah, it just fell flat, man. Uh, you got to keep on coming up with good ideas. And one of the things that I thought, and uh, this could give me a bit of trouble. No, it's all right. Uh, one thing about Vince McMahon and WWE is they never stop. They keep on keeping on, and they're always thinking of something. One of the things I thought over my whole career at WCW, and some big names are involved with the somewhat disastrous outcome on some of this stuff. One thing Vince did really well, uh, which I thought, I'm sorry, I'm a camera, I'm a camera person, I can adjust my camera. Well, it's tilted there. Anyway, I'm maybe I can hold it up like that. So one of the things that I really had a problem with was when something would happen and it would go wrong, one thing Vince would do really well was he'd make it something like they meant to do that. But oftentimes we would like sweep it under the rug like cat turd. And there's a big difference on how you think about things when you just want to hide stuff or you want to make it like you meant to do that. And Vince never stopped. I mean, I think to a certain point, once the NW got on a roll, they got too relaxed. Vince doesn't do that. He never did that. He'd never stop. And I think that was a problem where ah, it's going good. It's kind of on its own and everything's kind of working. Let's just let's all make a plan. I can't tell you how many times production we go, look, you need to make a three month to a year plan on who you're going to have fight who eventually when and make those increments on how to get that over a year in advance, you know? And uh, we just like the spontaneity of it all. Eric would always say that, you know, like, no, we just, there's something to do with spontaneity that really works for us. And, you know, there's lightning in the bottle. You can't capture it very often in my mind. If you have a plan now, yes, you can make it happen, but you got to have a good plan, man. And that's one thing we really did disagree on a lot. We have, you have to have a plan. Vince has got a plan. I guarantee you. Now, whether he reveals it or not, maybe a different story. Who's all involved with how it all works? Maybe that, we don't know. We don't know who that is. But I bet he had one, and I bet he had a real detailed one, at least an idea of what would work on maybe plan A, plan B, and plan C. And for a long time, and stretch it out, you know. And we just, we weren't good at that. We're good at planning. And that's, I think that was a deny part of it. Yeah. I, I understand. And I, I do want to say, though, I, I do feel like Vince McMahon has forgotten what, because I, I don't really watch anymore, but, you know, I, I've, I've, got a, I've got a bit of a, a feeling that he's forgotten what brought him to the dance and that's seeing an idea through and, and letting, yeah. and having, having, having uh, the, the trust in people working in the creative field in your company to just let those ideas be seen through if it's a six month story arc or a 12 month story arc or this is the matches that you want to happen at the next WrestleMania. I feel like things just chop and change so much and WCW get picked on a lot about that 
you know, after all these years, but WWE are making those same mistakes now, which is why they don't have compelling television and why the ratings are going mm-hmm. down. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I can't I can't really speak for what they're doing now because I really, frankly, for years, haven't really paid attention to any wrestling at all. Uh, trust I me, just, you're not you know, missing I, anything. I've watched hundreds <laughs> and thousands. I watched hundreds of matches. And I did. The, I've been there, done that, did that. It was cool. We had fun. But yeah, I'm done. Um, so I only had like four more questions before our final segment. Um, uh, NWO 2000, uh, Vince Russo is there. Um, I am a fan of, of some of the stuff that he's done, but I kind of felt like NWO 2000 just, it just. So wasn't... you're the one. <laughs> I just don't think NWO 2000 worked. You know what I mean? Um, like, look, uh, I just, it just didn't work. Uh, yeah, it just didn't work. Uh, you're still in the company at the time. How did you feel about it? Because the presentation of it just totally wasn't what it was. And I don't know. I don't even know why he th- thought bringing it back would be a good idea at that point. But um, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure you'll be a broken record with this answer. But uh, how, how did you feel about about that? Well, let me go on record saying that the Vince, Mc, Vince uh, Russo thing was a disaster. Um. Ed, Ed and I got along. We went to Calgary, Alberta. Did an interview with Bret Hart. By the way, I was Bret Hart's shoulder. It's part of my 15 minutes of fame. I was Bret's shoulder. Uh, we only had one camera when we went to Calgary, Alberta. So, um, Scott, I can't think of his last name. Scott, the announcer. Scott Hudson. Do you remember his last name? I don't know. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Scott. Scott Hudson. Scott Hudson. Yeah. Awesome. The guy is great. Yeah, I've, I've so spoken to him a couple of times. So great to work with. Such a smart guy. Such a knowledgeable wrestling guy. What's that? Uh, I've, I've just, I've had several He's conversations terrific. with him. Even uh, we've interviewed him, but I also just spoke to him on the phone for like three hours once. So <laughs> Nice, <laughs> He's, dude. Uh, great guy. My... Tell him I said, hey, you could talk to him. We'll do. One of my we'll favorite do. people, for real. Yeah. He's a terrific guy. He did some great stuff with Bobby Heenan, by the way. He's such a good straight man. Oh, I love the late WCW Worldwide stuff where, you know, we, I'm talking about 2000 Worldwide where it's Scott and Bobby and Bobby is just up to mischief the whole time and uh, Scott yeah. does not does not break a, a, a sweat. He doesn't crack it. Yeah, all. man. <laughs> One of the best shoots. So you're going to have to remind me of the story we're on, but uh, I want to go, I'll, I'll go off a little bit of tangent and you can edit this however you want. Scott and Bobby, I did a lot of the hype shows for the pay-per-view events. And I was involved with that. Yeah, I've done quite a few of them. Well, this one that we did, Halloween Havoc in Las Vegas, was a deal where we wanted to act as if we were live both in Las Vegas and in Atlanta. But Atlanta was all pre-recorded. Scott and Bobby. So we'd pitch back and forth between them. And I had not been on the worldwide set before. But this lady named Diane, she really had that set looking good and she was great at getting props and stuff together. I mean, she really had it down. Halloween was just decorated so nicely. The crew I had worked with most of them before, um, Snake, Tim Snyder, who I interviewed, Neil Pruitt, Secrets of WCW Nitro. He was the only camera guy. This 
friend that I eventually became friends with, who is a crane operator, Ralph Prado, worked terrifically on that. And we developed a plan on making all that happen. But we pitched back and forth between um, Las Vegas and Chad Damiani and Jeremy Borash were in Las Vegas. The guy who directed that part of it in Las Vegas just screwed it up badly. He was horrible. And I wanted to just strangle him because I had a good plan going in. And I told him I would direct it for him. But he didn't want to hear it because it's his truck. And it just, wow, it was a disaster. I said, look, I'll let you punch it, dude. I just want to tell you when to take it and when to do it. He, he got everything all out of order. So it's supposed to be a live thing, reacted to this was live. It was a disaster. But the cool thing about it is I got to work with a guy named Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe from Dirty Dirty Jobs. I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you had that down there, but there's a show called Dirty Jobs and in, in America, just huge. And uh, he's really funny and he was a great pitch man and he's really famous here now, but great guy. But that was just a disaster. But we're, we're going back to the other story. Uh, yeah, um, um, uh, uh, it was NWA 2000 with, um, I just, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of Jeff Jarrett, but I just don't think Jeff Jarrett suited being in the NWO. The Harris brothers, big fan of them too. Don't think they suited yeah, the NWO. And like, like uh, even after Nash was injured, Steiner was back off television after getting suspended because <laughs> he's a, a, a naughty boy. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, I think Scott Hall uh, had, uh, again, had some issues, but... They just kept it on television with Jarrett and uh, the Harris brothers uh, for a, a several months, I believe. I think that was even after Russo had gone and uh, Kevin Sullivan was back in charge. But um, yeah, it just didn't seem to work. It just didn't have the same vibe. So I'll go on, like I have uh, told other people. I thought Vince Russo was paid by Vince McMahon. I don't know that you can think of that many ideas and actually get them on TV, that many bad ideas and get them on television without forcefully being paid to do stuff. Uh, I know probably other people you've talked to said the same thing, but I just felt as if the dude was getting paid by Vince, just burying the thing. I really do. I mean, and Vince is that smart a businessman. He'd do that, you know? I mean, he's, he, he's, not a, he's not below any of that. You know, that's simple, that's easy. Get an insider in there. It's just like politics, you know, get the insider in there and have them destroy the place. And that's what I thought Vince Russo was. I had mentioned that when Ed and I went to Calgary, Alberta and interviewed Bret Hart, that was fine. And I got along Ed, with Ed good, but I don't know that I ever even met um, Vince for more than a few minutes. And, you know, that's like, I, you know, respect is, in the wrestling business and I just didn't know that I got so much from him at all, which is kind of odd for me. I never had a good feeling about the guy and I think I'm pretty good at judging character. Never, never did. Never was a fan. I didn't uh, really see the whole point. So I understand. I didn't like what he did. And I didn't really like him putting himself over. I didn't like him putting the belt on Arquette, which was a really odd thing where David Arquette making that film about Oh, that, I mean, you ready can't to write rumble. this stuff. <laughs> you can't write this stuff, man. I mean, you know, when he's coming back, now he's wrestling in the independent circuit to prove himself that he was actually, actually pretty decent I, I watched that documentary Dude, he that put out. Bizarre. I wish he put out a documentary it. about it. I'll tell you what, like, I, I respect what he's actually done. He's uh, he's killed himself to, to try and uh, yeah. make up for what everyone's been angry at him over for so many years. That's and so bizarre. And I, 
I, in a way, I feel sorry <laughs> for the guy, really, because, you know, he was put in a position where, you know, he got paid. And I don't He's think he's a massive he knew wrestling the, fan, too. Like, who wouldn't want to be yeah, like. Yeah, I, I don't know that he knew, though, of the respect <laughs> that they kind of command in the business or whatever. You know, it's, it's funny that you, you might uh, demand respect in such a contrived business. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of controversial there in itself, you know. I know some wrestlers that I personally talked to, which I can't mention their name, but they think it's funny. Where okay, so you got to respect something that's fake, you know. So this whole Hall of Fame thing of a thing that's contrived is really <laughs> special, really. I mean, it, it goes on both sides. I mean, I understand both both avenues of how you think about it, but it is funny. It's really weird. I don't know if you know Neil, but. Uh... Did you know that it was actually Tony Schiavone's idea for uh, David Arquette to win the belt? Yeah, I found it out. And, uh, oh, Tony. That was weird. I don't think I ever asked Tony, Tony about it. Tony, why didn't you just keep your Tony lives shut? right around me, by the way. <laughs> oh, I love Tony. Best, I mean, Jim Ross, oh, he's, he's probably the best, but Tony's right behind him as far as I'm concerned. And um, oh, yeah. no, no disrespect to... I'm telling you. What yeah. a hard worker. A yes. Yes. And his wife Lois is a trip. I just saw him recently at the grocery store. Oh, cool. Cool. Man, yeah. I, I'm a massive fan of Tony. I, I think he's such oh, a yeah. funny person. And uh, I'm so he's happy that with. he's um I'm so happy he's back on television doing it because it's he's got such an iconic voice, you know. Yeah, it's funny, and I don't know if you saw it, but uh, he had done this Sean Mooney type interview for some thing they did in North Carolina before he got back with AEW. I don't know if you saw it, but if you're a big Tony Schiavone fan. You yeah, know. no, he did, uh, yeah, like the old school kind of, he's in the uh, yeah, like control having center. The old school <laughs> control center, yes, wow, dude. I shot yeah. that in my basement. Wow. I shot that in my basement. Really? So oh the, my God, yeah. that's amazing. After all these he years, brought the, yeah, he brought his blazer over and all that. And yeah. uh, I actually gave him a mic with a mic flag on it. Oh, that, we didn't even use that audio, wasn't even plugged in. So I had a, I had a boom mic that got it. Wanted to recreate the control center. And uh, I forget who the producer was on the other end that edited it together. But dude, I thought it was hilarious. I said, dude, oh, you man. nailed that, man. I, I was really, I had a bunch of respect for that producer on the other end. I said, man, you killed it, dude. That was right on. Man, I couldn't have done a better job. In the way. He was on. Anyway, yeah. I loved him. Yeah, me too. Um, so, I actually just thought of this just now because I asked Scott Hudson about it, but he didn't know the answer because he couldn't actually remember. But maybe you could shed some light on this because there's just not any information online about it. And it's about when WCW Saturday night in 2000, I believe it was April, was now no longer going to be WCW Saturday night. Um, well, it was still going to be, but it was going to be just a clip show, no uh, taped matches, uh, but then eventually, I think it's August of 2000 or, or I don't know, I, I should have done a bit more research, but I, I, I do know I've read about it. It became WCW Saturday morning. Do you remember this? And uh, why was it switched to a morning show? And then eventually, why was it taken off the air? Well, I think... Saturday morning, they often need programming. It's just one of those things that's tough to compete against cartoons anyway. You got to fill it with some kind of slot. So 
In other words, when you know you're going to get shipped to the Saturday morning, there's trouble in the waters. Yeah. Um, you know it's pretty much going to come to the end pretty soon. So it's probably just a way of them working it out of the system. Yeah. And they knew it was not going to work. And the executives anyway hated wrestling. A lot of them. I mean, if you read my co-host on Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro, Guy Evans' awesome book, it's just, if you're a wrestling fan, it's a must read. Um, Got Eric it. Bischoff, he would tell you that. Eric Bischoff, who really is kind of to himself, um, not super, not a super complimentary guy. He actually literally grabbed me and wanted me to lead him to meet Guy Evans in the hotel in Chicago to shake his hand and tell him what a great job he did on the book Nitro. The Incredible Rise. Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW on yeah. Amazon.com. You can also get the audio version too. But Guy did just a, just a great job on writing all this and putting it all together. Yeah, finally putting out the uh, uh, a more true uh, version of events than the um, what the Everything. WWE um, out as a narrative of what happened with WCW, which is it's such bullshit. Um, it, 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 why are they telling the story? No, this is the true story, and he's just got it down to a T. Mm -hmm. With the amount of people that he interviewed, we have the actual story. And anyone out there, please check out the book, get the audio book. I have both. Uh, it is fantastic. Um, I need to get on Guy. I don't think I have the audio version yet. Yep, I've got it. He um, talks funny. <laughs> Does he talk funny to you? <laughs> Not really. No. no. But uh, <laughs> uh, I think us Aussies, maybe to you guys, we talk funny as well. Uh, <laughs> Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. All right, wait, bro. Wait, wait. <laughs> uh, oh, so, yeah. <laughs> did you ever get to see the uh, NWO and the WWE? It wasn't around uh, long, unfortunately, but and there was a there's a producer that was a good friend of mine that worked with us, Jason Douglas, who's just he's torn it up since he's just terrific. Um he's kind of my take a look at this. And he's he's he'll watch it every now and then, so he'll tell me what I should watch and everything. Yeah, you can give me links to it. I thought the open that they did and the Triton Tron or whatever you call it, uh that was awesome. Wow. They really, they probably took it to another level. I mean, they really did great. Um, we were just kind of making it up as we went, but they were probably able to look at it and get a different spin on it and use something that had already been established, which is kind of fun. It, it, that's, that's been one of the most exciting things, Carl, for me was what have they done with it since I and Kemper worked on it, the great crews we had? What did they do with it? And that's really uh, an honor to see all the different spins on things. And yeah. what I saw, they did a really good job with what I saw graphically. I really can't speak for the storylines because I didn't pay that much attention because yeah. I didn't, you know, didn't care. But I really wanted to see what spin they put on the look of everything. I thought they did good. But I don't know what do you think. I, I didn't really watch it much other than graphic. Um, I, I've said this a few times on the show. Uh, when the, when WWE broke my heart, it was a three-strike deal. 
when they did the invasion angle and they just made WCW look like mm. didn't bring in any of the big stars, didn't do the story right. I mean, that story should have lasted years, not six months. Uh, yeah. That was the first strike because that was a dream for me. Oh my God, I'm going to see Sting and, and Undertaker. I'm going to see Goldberg and Austin. I'm going to see all these matches mm-hmm. always wanted. And instead, right. it just, the main top guys in the WCW team was Stone, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle never wrestled for them. Why would he? It's just, yeah, yeah it, right. it break, that broke my heart. That was number one. The NWO coming to WWE, that was number two. Um, I know Hogan just kept getting baby face reactions, so they knew that it just wasn't working in that sense. But mm-hmm. I think they yeah. could have figured out a way to to um, to keep it going a little bit longer. Uh, but that failed. And then uh, when they relaunched ECW, I was very excited about that, but they watered that down as well. So it was three strikes, and I was just kind of done with it at that point. But um, not that this is important for can... you to know, but <laughs> I just thought I'd say. Yeah, no, no, I, I appreciate your perspective because obviously you're a fan and you know what it's all about and you understand the business, which is a perspective that not everybody has, which is one that I really want to hear from. On the side of Vince, though, I can tell you, and I've seen this in almost every promotion, but I think Jody was not like that, though. Uh, he, he was he was all from whatever works, making money. If I don't get along with him, fine. You know, whatever. I'm still going to make money with him. And one thing I think Vince lets his ego get involved with a lot of these decisions. And he wants to so badly bury someone else or make it look like they're not as good as the almighty WWE. He probably lost a lot of money thinking along those lines. And like you said, you wanted to see this, you wanted to see that. Well, he could have done that, but their ego won't let them. Yeah, Maybe, maybe that gets in the way. But then again, their ego may be the reason why they're there where they are anyway. You know, it's like any politician. Who's the president and how do they act and what do they really exactly. like and all that. Yeah, it's like, and and there were a lot of other uh, bumps along the way for me as a fan. You know, I'm excited to see Scott Steiner come to the WWE as Big Papa Pump. And then they, he he does two pay-per-views at Triple H as the main event. And then on WrestleMania, which is the third pay-per-view, he's not even on it. And Goldberg comes in and that's watered down. And then all these years later, Sting is there and they mishandled that and do wrong by him. He should have won in his first WrestleMania match. It, oh, we yeah. all we all wanted to see Sting and Undertaker. So like every time a WCW guy came over, I was so excited. And then when it was clear that it wasn't working because they weren't going to give it the time of day that it deserved, that really hurt me as a fan, bro. Mm-hmm. No, I get it. I'm... Uh... So happy for the Undertaker, though, dude. Oh, me too. Oh, his huge success. Um, man, I, you know, I'm not sure how much he remembers it, but, um, and and he he kindly acknowledged me when I was backstage or whatever sometimes. But he was really cool at when he was me and Mark Callis at WCW. We'd sit up and talk this in the stands, and I think Scott Hall and I did too, and a couple other people. We just, you know, before the Saturday night TV taping sometimes, because you know, these guys uh they were thinking about their career and everything. And I'm just so 
glad he was able to land at a place that could show the guy's talent, figure out what to do with him. Because uh, he was always really nice. And, uh, he's always respectful of the business. And Stone Cold Steve was the same way. Um, sending Steve Austin with us. Uh, that's really cool. Because one thing that was nice about my career is that Stone Cold was kind of nervous about being in front of the camera. And uh, he really wanted to do it, though. So he wanted to be really good on camera, like Flair, you know. And we kind of helped him through all that anxiety a little bit. And that's, that's a cool thing to know. Um, yeah. He was able to, you know, wow. be himself, you know, and just get naturally feeling comfortable in front of the camera. That's really cool. Yeah, man. Yeah. 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 I, you know, The Undertaker, man, he's probably the greatest of all time, really. Um, I, I want to ask you. His wife's uh, cool, too, by the way. His wife's really cool. Michelle? So I worked with her at WWE. Michelle McCoolia. Yeah. yeah. She, was, she was with us at WWE. Yeah. And we work with The Miz. And The Miz, a great colleague. Um, Tyrus, who's on that political show in America. Um, Kofi Kingston. Jack Swagger. Uh, Luke Gallows. Several of our. Several superstars were of our Deep South wrestling show, Jody Hampton. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and Bill DeMond, Bill DeMond, obviously. It was crucial in that. Hugh Morris. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Um, so I wanted to ask you now, um, we're getting to the tail end, the very, very tail end. Uh, when you found out WCW was bought by the WWE. Um, I think we... Now, bought by the WWE or knew it was going to end? Uh, either or, whatever you want to, whatever yeah, your perspective um, was. It's kind of all the same, you're right. We were all called into the power plant, which is where they taught the young wrestlers how to wrestle. Yeah. And it was a pretty cool building. It was an old warehouse. And we were off-site from Turner, which is great. And you'd have never known where the WCW was or the offices were. We had like junior supply out front, <laughs> junior supply construction company. Had <laughs> no WWE's by the way. Well, they do all their TV taping of the the leads and all that. It's in Connecticut. It's down the road from the towers where people think it's all done. You would never have any idea where it's done. It just looks like some kind of regular warehouse, and you have no idea unless you've been there and been carted in there. Like no signs out there, nothing. Uh, I remember when um, so, uh, there was an episode of Nitro and Eric Bischoff was no longer president of WCW and he was trying to get into the building and he was pressing the buzzer and stuff. So that's the only time I ever really saw the front of the uh, WCW office. <laughs> okay, yeah. And that was that was probably it for real. But yeah, and we didn't want you to know. Um, <laughs> anyway, we're talking about, oh, I'm sorry, we're talking about the, when you found out WCW was uh, been bought by. Yeah. So there was like a warehouse that had like a huge three-story staircase. Like we actually shot a Raven video. But the guy got up on this real high platform and we were all down below looking up like, hey, I just need to announce that, you know, WWE has bought WCW and we're no longer going to be working after some certain date. We're gonna give you a severance package and we're gonna, boy, we're gonna to try to get you all jobs within the Turner system. 
that was bullshit. Yeah. But luckily, they were so kind to give us a great severance package. Wow. It was amazing how much they gave us. It was great. Some people got over a year's worth of salary. Wow. Same salary, not doing any job at all because they had been there for so long. So that was cool. But yeah, it was one of those things where uh, kind of almost wanted to be over, I guess, maybe. Yeah. Because of the way it was going. It just, it did run its course, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but then once, once that happened, I really took the wind out of my sails as far as creativity goes and what to do next. And one of the worst days of my life was no doubt the Panama City TVTV, or excuse really? me, live event where WWE took over. That was weird. Yeah. Was, I still was... have the, I still have the poster, by the way, that was hanging on WWE's door. Uh, yeah. It said, uh, WCW production, <laughs> WWE, and I, oh, excuse me, it said WC, uh, WWF. I really? That oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> along with my NWO camera, you know, Scott Hall used. If, if you could send me a picture of that uh, through email, I'd really love to look at that. Um, okay, I'll do that, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I did want to talk about the final Nitro in Panama City. Um, and, and this is my second last question. Uh, how was that day for you? And what did you do after the show was over? Mm, 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 mm. Wow. That was odd, man. Um, like I said, hopefully on many times, many occasions, the crews that we had, the best, they did anything you asked and would go the extra mile. And when we didn't have when we had new people come in crew-wise, if we didn't get along or the crew members didn't get along or this is just, this, it just didn't work out, we got rid of them. We had the best. And we, we didn't settle for anything less than the best. So to know all those people for that many years, it was 11 for me. And then know I was never going to see those people again. Wow, dude. As a matter of fact, um, I didn't do a single thing during the show. I didn't even have a job, but they sent me down there because they knew how important it was to me. I might have done some pre-packages on Daytona Beach, but I don't remember. And one thing I do remember, though, very vividly, backstage they have, they have monitors set up where you can watch what's going on. Uh, I remember Jane McMahon coming in. Uh, who's, the, who's the main guy that was in and out? Uh, Bruce uh, Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Yeah, I'd like to meet him uh, and talk to him someday. Because our paths have kind of crossed a little bit, but never really sat down and talked to him. But I think he was there. He was real nice. Uh, Shane was real nice. They're very professional in how they handle them. But I just remember uh, at one point, it was really odd, and I don't know how it ended up that way, but there was several TVs back then. But Blair and I were just in a room together, just two of us, which was really odd. And we just looked at each other like, I think it was maybe the final shot even when 
show ended and the lower third came on saying that this is the property rights of WWF or whatever. Looked at each other like, how the hell did this happen? But I know Flair was happy. He, he is over it. Uh, he was good. You know, he was going to be good. Uh, Triple H is a big fan of his. And, you know, Flair is always going to be talent, you know. Uh, but, boy, the, the emotion of people wrapping up the cables and just going through that all. And just I tried to go around to everybody and say, uh, See how much I appreciate it. It's weird. Strange day. Um, I think I think a lot of the wrestlers were happy. One of the things that's never uh, aired, uh, which I think would be interesting to a lot of fans, is I actually did a bunch of interviews before that show that weekend, talking to people like Booker T and Chris Jericho, maybe uh, Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, people like that, and uh, it's never aired. But that, that, I think that'd be kind of interesting to put that on a pay per view or, or like you know. On, on demand or something, yeah, kind of Paul, but uh, nobody's ever seen it. Yeah, we we're kind of, we had talked about that. The guy that shot it uh, and kind of had the rights to it. Uh, he's busy doing his own film stuff. Uh, he's made some really good independent films. He was a editor for uh, WCW on some of our projects that we didn't mainly have to have um, a WCW person involved. Some of the highlight packages were just awesome. He did great promos for uh, uh, TCM Turner classic movies yeah. but that would be kind of interesting i think to some people and we had talked about it a few years ago getting it together <clears throat> but all of us were kind of so busy to make it happen but that would be fun to see that again absolutely uh, it was a weird day well, um, but, uh, thank you oh, the thank fans, much were, the fans are great thank you very much for sharing that with me bro i really appreciate it oh, yeah um you hit me right here bro uh so uh, I wanted to, uh, the final question before I get to a final segment that I do where I do some quick fire questions about other things that you like in life. You find out the NWO is going in the Hall of Fame of the WWE, um, Hogan, Hall, Nash, uh, Six as well. Uh, so, you know, what are your thoughts on, on finding out that this group's going to be in the Hall of Fame? And I just want to say right here, right now, I hope that they mention your name during that segment, and also Kevin Sullivan, because it's, ah. it's important to um, to talk about some well, of the thanks, people man. that made the NWO what it was. I appreciate it. Um, luckily, Kevin Nash often does mention me, which is very kind. And uh, Hogan and I were going to work together on something, but it just didn't work out. I was a uh, they're going to do like a reunion tour or something, but uh, I kind of talked to his producer and wanted to really know what it was all about because I thought it could turn into something, but it just didn't come to fruition. But yeah, I mean, I can say that one thing about uh, Scott and Kevin is they do often mention me in a good light, you know, which is really good. And uh, that's why I try to mention people like Kemper Rogers and, and uh, Bill Tins and Keith Mitchell, uh, Craig Leathers, uh, these guys, the crew, you know, they really made it happen. But yeah, uh, I was glad to see that, really. Um, I think it was, uh, it was 
necessary to do that um, for the fans. And I think the fans appreciate it a bunch. I really do. Um, see those guys together. And to see uh, what Diamond Dallas Page has done with Scott Hall and helping Scott Hall. Wow. Yeah. Dude, absolutely. I was uh, I was worried about him and another guy that's really come out of it on a better end. I won't mention his name. But uh, yeah. that that's really good to see that uh, people can be helped, you know. And uh, see Scott in, wow, much better shape than he was. <laughs> really, yeah, really great to absolutely. see. But yeah, I thought it was cool. Really cool. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I ever watched the segment from start to finish. So I don't know if they ever mentioned me or not. Uh, it's okay if they didn't. Uh, uh, they, they, uh, they yeah, actually Kevin, they, Kevin uh, they've postponed the Hall of Fame uh, because of COVID, obviously. So it hasn't happened oh. yet. But um, Oh, because I, I saw uh, something where Scott Hall, maybe, maybe somebody individually was uh, taken in there then. So maybe I'm Oh yeah, you might be. Yeah, no, the actual the three of them, well, and and uh, Sean Waltman, that NWO oh. induction hasn't happened yet. It was supposed to happen oh, this you. year. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry um, about my stupidity because I I had seen something no, where uh, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash both came out and did something, you know, really good. Yeah. So maybe I'm just confused on it. Like I yeah. said, I I don't follow it. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, well, I'm anyway, Hogan, Hall, Nash, and X-Pac have been announced to all be inducted together as the NWO. Um, uh, oh, very good. It was okay. supposed to happen at this year's Hall of Fame, but probably next year if there's a chance that they can do it. But um, Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, Neil, um, so I, I will uh, get on to this last segment here. It's, it's called Five Second Frenzy, Neil. In a five second frenzy, you got five seconds, and even if you don't, make the five seconds it's okay because most wrestlers or people that i've had on the show need longer than five seconds to answer each question but it's just to learn a little bit more about the things that you like there's two questions about wrestling but the rest are about other things so are you ready neil pruitt nwo for life <laughs> ready at all times the following answers have not been sanctioned by the new world order <laughs> Neil, first one here on Five Second Frenzy. Who is your favorite wrestler? Macho Man Randy Savage. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, your favorite match? Oh, you yeah. <laughs> Brother, give me some verbiage. We went to uh, Harvard. We were inducted into Harvard together. The Harvard Lampoon. <laughs> we got put in a, we got blindfolded, given a couple beers, crank them down, got spun around about eh, for 15 seconds. They said, count to 30 before you take the blindfold off. We counted to 30. They all vacated the room. We took our masks off, looked around, could not find the exit at the Harvard <laughs> Lampoon. They all abandoned us. They all abandoned us. We were there by ourselves. And we looked around. Had no idea how to get out of there. It was a circular room from top to bottom filled with comedy books. And Conan O'Brien, who's one of the talents that's on television here at night in America. Yep. He was part of Harbor Lampoon. So that one thing I was locked in the room with Macho Man Randy Savage and survived. <laughs> That's my story. Um, what's the favorite match you've ever seen, Neil? Mm. Wow. That's a good one. I can tell you a series of matches that may be really weird uh, as an answer because it's probably a lot different 
than most would say. Some of the most exciting, entertaining matches I ever seen or saw, however, that was Blind Brian Pillman and Jushin Thunder Liger. Oh, yeah, bro. Yeah. Those dudes could make it happen, man. And they really delivered on Super Brawl, too. And what's weird about it was this would often happen. The wrestler would come to the production people afterwards and go, dude, man, what, you know, how'd you like my match? What did you, what did you think about it? We're like, don't even really know, man. <laughs> then you know who won. It's got, because you're doing your job, you know, you don't really pay attention to it that way. But I don't know, for some reason, I was really able to watch those matches and just be amazed at the talent of those two and how they were able to get the crowd up and down. Wow. And now I, I got to say, though, those are the best I've ever seen on television. Now, if you want to know the best match I've ever seen, no doubt. Never made it good on television, in my opinion. They never clicked together. But during the house shows, just blew the roof off the was Rick Rude versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Wow. Yeah. Here's, what, here, here's when you know it's a special match, okay? They're going to lead up to one of their big matches on pay-per-view. Rick Rude was one of the best heels ever. And Ricky Steamboat's one of the nicest baby faces ever known to man. And, you know, can get sympathy better than anybody. I asked him once, what's to do? Your selling is just impressive. And for those who might not be wrestling fans and probably wouldn't be listening to this anyway, selling is when you act like you get hit or whatever. I said, dude, you're, when you get punched, you sell it better than anybody I've ever seen. I said, because here's what I hate. When somebody gets punched in the face and their head goes back, like that, like have you ever been in a fight ever? Do you not know how it works? Inertia or how physics works? When you get punched from this side of the face, your, your face goes like that, right? That's a good effect with a camera, by the way. But, you know, you, you, your your jaw goes like that, but instead of like that. It's, anyway, that's <laughs> a of mine. As you can tell, I'm passionate about it. Yeah. But Ricky said that he watched fights of knockouts over and over and over. Wow. Of boxers knocking each other out. And, like, how did that look? And how did that reaction happened and what happened to their legs and their arms and how did they flail and what had happened to their knees when they buckled and how they fall down and man i just thought that was a nice little schooling on how it worked because i remember just talking to him about it you know because i was amazed by how good it was he goes dude that's how i did it wow um, well anyone out there who's wrestling they should they should take a page out of what he did you know that's that's, re that's research now, right there yeah, Rick Rude, uh, he, he was in the interview room. And one thing I knew that my job was when I did audio, especially, and I produced the, those, we did 110 interviews one time at, at Gainesville, uh, Gainesville, Georgia, in one day. Now, some of them were 10 seconds, some were two minutes. And I'll go off on a little tangent on that one. Jim Cornette, one of the best mic guys ever known to man. One of the best mouths of the business. Just for the hell of it, Tony goes, Tony, Tony Schiavone was kind of in charge of the interview room because he did so many of the stand-up stick interviews, right? He goes, let's do, let's do this. When Jim Cornette comes in today, let's not count him down. 
let's tell him he get, he's got two minutes to talk about this match in this place. Let's just see how long he can yammer on. <laughs> and I think we recorded, you know, some of those things you just wish you had, like the Gene and Bobby together, uh, just continuing to make us laugh. Some of them in a WWE vault somewhere, there's some outtakes that just make you laugh your head off. And I wish I had recorded taking a lot of me just in that time. Didn't think about it. But Jim Cornette goes on and on and on, dude. And I think he talked for close to five minutes straight. It was a two minute, supposed to be a two minute. He goes, when you assholes are going to wrap me up on this? You know, because <laughs> he knew we were playing a rib on him by then. But I mean, the whole time he was talking, he made sense. It was perfect. I mean, didn't stutter, stammer, nothing. He just kept on talking, man. And it was just, see, one thing about doing these podcasts and everything is for me, if you'd listen to my first one talking about renting, renting on Alcatraz and doing the video and shooting it backwards with the shots backwards order with Roddy Piper, you'd listen to me talking then and you go like, this ain't the same person, is it? But I learned a whole lot about how to talk in front of people and on camera like I'm doing now or on audio by watching those guys do it. And I've gained a lot of knowledge. And I'm, I, I thought about writing a book about it, about how to communicate better with people from what I learned from yeah. wrestling. Yeah. Anyway, Rick Rude, he was a double entendre guy. Um, so words being said in certain order means certain things that can really be construed as nasty, sexual, whatever. So I was kind of Rick Rude's audio police for Turner. But dude, he would he would slide some in and try to get by. Dude, you can't do that. I mean, he was so good at it, dude. I mean, he was very very clever with his language in some of his interviews. I mean, the guy. Let's 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 just say it straight up. I mean, God rest his soul and all that. But the guy was one of the best heels, nasty talking people ever known. Wow, he was so good at it. Yeah. And he wasn't exactly the nicest guy in the world a lot of times, you know. But some of the funny things that I think uh which is really funny. Um, and uh Stone Cold Steve Austin says this on his podcast. He interviewed somebody and they were talking about weird, odd things that happened. As nasty as some of the Rick Rude interviews would be, um he said one thing Rick Rude really would jump on people about is using God's name in vain. Yeah. He would like really get mad about that. So I thought that was kind of an odd story and odd thing. But I was a recruit audio police. He gets upset about that, but, but it, Ricky, it is... Ricky Steamboat. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a lot more than five seconds. <laughs> it's not five minute frenzy, Neil. Um, <laughs> uh, so the next one, Neil, is your favorite book. Favorite book. Wow. All right. Uh, favorite wrestling book, no question. Nitro, The Incredible Rise, Inevitable Collapse, Ted Turner's WCW. I yeah. was, I guess, egotistically, I can say I was in three books, so that was cool. Um, <laughs> Have a Nice Day by Mick Foley. I think page 98 and 102, maybe. So that was a New York bestseller, so that was cool. That's one of my favorite books, even though I haven't read it. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's really funny. And you know what a good idea would be to actually get the audio book, because Mick 
does it himself. So that yeah. um, it's it's entertaining in itself because of Mip talking. Um, the next one in yeah. Five Second Frenzy, Neil, is your favorite TV show. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's go back to my favorite book real quick. Oh, sure. So my favorite book that I'd advise anybody to read, Tony Robbins, um, who's worldwide, Anthony Robbins, whatever he goes by now. When he was Tony Robbins, his very first book, um, it's called Personal Power. So it, if you're trying to better yourself in business or communication or whatever, read that book, dude. I've read it three times. Personal Power by Anthony Robbins, my favorite book. And of course, the Bible uh, being the ultimate of all books that tells truth throughout history and hasn't been, they tried to cut it apart and try to say that it's not that and it says something different here, but no, dude, it tells you the truth the whole way about life. Any question you got in life is answered in the Bible and the all-time favorite book for me yeah, is that. Fair First enough. Power. Cool. Uh, so yeah, favorite TV show. Uh, I always loved the Little Rascals. <laughs> <laughs> little Rascals are hilarious. Let's oh, go cool, with that. Cool. I think that's on. Uh, your favorite film? Pretty easy one. Raising Arizona. Nicolas Cage. Um, every line I think I know. I probably watched it 15 times close to it. <laughs> it's hilarious. The Coen Brothers are my favorite filmmakers. So Raising Arizona. Nice, nice. Uh, favorite musical artist? Hmm. I like Rod Stewart a lot. Oh, cool, man. Yeah. I, like, I like Bruce Springsteen a lot. I don't like his politics, but I like him. Uh, Plum in concert on the Born to Run tour. Yeah. Pretty good stuff. Yeah, so I, I like Rod Stewart a lot. He's really done well. Cool, man. I like Rod Stewart too. Uh, your favorite food? You talk like Rod Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. My favorite food, veal parmesan. Oh, no, no, not veal anymore. Chicken parmesan. Very nice. I actually ate that last night for dinner. Um, nice. Your favorite place to eat on the road? Not Waffle House. Craig Leathers love Waffle House. I got stick of Waffle House. Good God. <laughs> We get Waffle House a lot here on the show, so it's uh, nice to yeah. get the opposing opinion. <laughs> so Scomas, Scomas, Italian restaurant in San Francisco, one of the best places on earth. Nice. I'll go with okay. that. Well, if I'm over there, I'll check it out. Um, Neil, the second last one here on Five Second Frenzy, favorite alcoholic beverage? I like vodka, seven, with lemon. Nice, nice. I've been enjoying a bit of red wine tonight, as you're probably aware. See that. We're going to have to talk about your cigarette smoking, by the way. That's going to be an off-the-air conversation. Trust me, next year, do, next year it's over. I used to do I'm medical done. videos. You are? Yeah, I used to do medical year, videos, dude. Yeah, we can talk about all this. I have you to, need some I have more to. encouragement. Oh, man. I'm going to come to Australia myself to hunt you down. <laughs> get those cigarettes out of your hand. Please, please do, because uh, the way that I cough when I wake up every morning is not a sight you want to see and not a sound you want to hear. Um, I'm glad, Carl, you're getting rid of that. <laughs> uh, so second last one, uh, 
Neil, look, it, it sounds like a naughty one on surface, but we do get interesting answers for it. It's favorite female body parts. Some people say eyes, some people say brain, some people say some other things. I'll say <laughs> the hourglass silhouette. Oh, awesome, yeah. man. I like that. Yeah, that's Just probably whole, my favorite answer. Deal, yeah, the, the whole deal, dude. Yeah, the whole deal. It's just uh, mesmerizing. It's just like, uh, uh, it's an uh. art form, dude. <laughs> it really is. You're right. It's an art form. I mean, wow. <laughs> you just can't, can't find it anywhere in the world. That's it. Uh, and lastly, that. Neil, I don't think you're going to be able to answer this question because I don't think you've sworn once on this show, but what would be your favorite curse word? Hmm. Probably damn. Damn. Yeah. Damn. For <laughs> well, my friend. So my friend, he said like, damn. <laughs> he said when I was back in uh back in Georgia when I was playing before I went to Florida State, that was chiseled out of Georgia granite. Damn. <laughs> That's oh, awesome. Bro, I'm what a oh man, guy. he's awesome. Man. He's good people. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so Neil, I, I, I really want to thank you for your time on the show. Uh, it has been so much fun talking to you. I was enthralled with every little intricate detail because that's what I'm all about. <laughs> Going through things with a fine tooth comb. I don't like to gloss over anything. I like to get those fine details. <laughs> and and to anyone yeah, out there, it, Neil Pruitt's Secrets of Nitro, you get every fine detail you want to hear about the steiner brothers getting flipped over in a car go there and find out about it you want to hear about roddy piper at alcatraz you'll find out about it there you want to find out about all the crazy stuff that was shot in world championship wrestling that's where to go neil am i right oh you nailed it dude it's been a pleasure <laughs> it's been a while since i've done one of these so i hung out i hang out with you for a long time that's awesome bro and uh, i just want to say to you as a fan of WCW, I hope that you are so proud of what you accomplished there. And at this stage of your life, it's been, what, 20 years, 19 years since WCW went away. Um, it's never been the same since then. But uh, I hope you're proud of what you accomplished there and, and that things that you created that you helped be a part of hit me right in the heart here in the most isolated city in the world, Perth, Western Australia. <laughs> Thanks, Drew. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. All that. Yeah, man. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It, it was so much fun. And to know that if you're wearing that shirt and I come up to you and say something, you may recognize some of the stuff that we were able to have fun doing. And I can't give enough thanks to the crews we, we had with us. I'm telling you, they were the best. Uh, we could have never done it without any of them. They don't get enough credit that they deserve putting their life on the line, their relationships on the line and all that to make it happen for the fans. And yeah, we got a good paycheck, but they put everything they had into it. And you can't ask for more than that when you work with people. They did whatever they could. And man, that was a pleasure. And you work with people like that, and you're really in sync and you're, you know, what a band is like being in a band and just really nailing it night after night to be able to nail it with 
whatever was thrown at us, we took things that we didn't have a clue on what was going to happen, but still came out going going pretty well on the other end. And I can I cannot thank anybody enough. And thanks for all the fans for watching across the world. I mean, to think that I was involved with something international, wow, that's it's mind-boggling. It really is having grown up, you know, in a steel mill type family in Northeast Ohio, uh, coming to Atlanta, um, sleeping in a sleeping bag next to my brother in a single wide trailer in a washroom of a single wide trailer. Wow. Come from there to international TV. So cool. So nice. So neat. That's awesome, Brian. Fun. Thank you again for your time, Neil. You're a, a tremendous sure. human being and this planet is, is better because Neil Pruitt existed on it. <laughs> Pleasure, Carl. <laughs> Thank you so much. No worries, brother. And thank you. Down down there, down there. Hope you get down there someday. Oh, one day come down and I'll, I'll cook you a good Aussie barbecue, my friend. I love it. <laughs> On the barbie. Excellent. Hey, hey, you know, then we'll have to have a uh, Foster's. It's like an angel crying on your tongue. <laughs> Foster's. <laughs> we get this so often i think i, I i've broken a few people you probably hearts. don't even have it done there do you foster's was created for the international market you can get it here but it's very hard to find it was created for the international market everyone thinks that hilarious. foster's is the big deal here it's it's really quite rare to find <laughs> hilarious that's funny that's that's like uh people drinking tap blue ribbon when i was in the uk thinking that was good beer it's like that's some of the worst beer ever made. Okay, I, I love I love Blue Ribbon. I love Blue Ribbon. <laughs> How about Rolling Rock? Rolling Rock I, used to be I've like never had the chance to beer. Have, I've never had the chance to have Rolling Rock. I've always wanted to. You ain't missed a whole lot. <laughs> oh, boy. Thanks, funny. Neil. Um, I'll do the outro yeah. now, and then we can chat after we're off the air. Okay, bro. Oh, good. Yeah. Thanks. So well, thank you Carl. again, Neil, and thank you to everyone for watching here on the WCWA Network. I am your host with the most on the West Coast, California Ferry with my new friend, Neil Pruitt, WCW producer, and we will see you next time. Thank you.